Hey, Steven. What's up, Tim? Seven Days in May is a political thriller about an unpopular president who has the courage to make peace with Russia, but then faces a coup from the deep state opposition. Is this a Cold War nuke film or a Fox News made-for-TV movie? Tim, I think you're being super critical. Welcome to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast, where we delve into the fun and oftentimes nonsensical way pop culture portrays nuclear weapons. My name is Tim Westmeyer, someone who studies nuclear weapons and works on nuclear security and counterproliferation for a living. I am joined today over Skype on the podcast with Stephen Schwartz, non-resident senior fellow at the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientist, former editor of the Nonproliferation Review, and editor and co-author of Atomic Audit, the costs and consequences of U.S. nuclear weapons since 1940. Stephen, welcome to the podcast. Great to be here. Thank you. Glad we we're able to get together here on this uh, Sunday morning. And I'm really happy also that you're on the podcast because I've been a big fan of the book Atomic Audit since high school. I've used that for resources. It was one of the first big looks that I've done when I was starting to get into be interested in nuclear weapons and nonproliferation topics. Also, I believe you're a big movie fan here. So this is a great way to combine all these things together. So very much appreciate you coming on today. Oh, it's great. No, and I definitely am a, a connoisseur of atomic films. <laughs> Good. Well, let's get into the one we have here today. Since we are firmly in the month of May, it is only appropriate that we talk about the movie Seven Days in May, where a liberal president negotiates a nuclear weapon disarmament treaty with the Soviet Union during the height of the Cold War. And for his troubles, he is threatened with a military coup led by a right-wing, pro-nuclear deterrent and super popular military leader. And I think this is a really interesting movie for us to cover on the podcast because it is one of the first ones that I think we've done where the plot is not an active effort to try to stop a nuclear use deployment, whether it's uh, trying to stop a terrorist or an accidental nuclear use or trying to deal with the consequences of it. It really is just, hey, what if someone was being proactive to try to stop these plots from happening in the first place? Can you think of many other movies that are that are along this line that are as popular as this one? Gosh, you know, I mean, the, the early to mid 1960s was kind of the heyday of this sort of this type of film, not surprisingly, I think, because the Cuban Missile Crisis ignited a lot of fear in people and I think drove screenwriters to come up with these very uh, uh, credible scenarios. So, no, not really. I mean, obviously, Failsafe deals with that, but that's a different, you know, a different genre. And there is an undercurrent in this film as well of, you know, the control aspect of nuclear weapons, what the president's responsibility is in particular, and, you know, how, how critical that is in the process, although it isn't really discussed explicitly. Mm -hmm. It's a little side scene by a pool, uh, which we'll get into here. Um, but yeah, as you mentioned, two years uh, after the Cuban Missile Crisis was when this movie was released. It was uh, originally meant to be released uh, the year before, but due to the uh, assassination of President Kennedy, it was delayed for a little bit longer. And then, you know, obviously mentioned in the middle of the Cold War. So really this movie captures a particular moment in time here. It was uh, directed by uh, John Frankenheimer, who's done a number of really great films out there. People may have heard of The Birdman and Alcatraz, the original Manchurian Candidate, uh, as well as the, the Island of Dr. Moreau, and one of the favorite movies of former podcast host Joel, uh, the movie Ronin, which I also really like as well with Robert De Niro. 
But you've read the book. So the movie was based off of a book uh, by, I'm going to hopefully I can pronounce this correctly, Fletcher Nebel and Charles W. Bailey II, which was published in 1962, which always amazes me that movies used to be made off of books like the year, like the next year, uh, <laughs> how quickly they could turn these around. But the screenplay was written by Rod Serling from Twilight Zone and everything else. I think it was one of his, his early works. Overall, you know, does the book adapt well into the movie? Do they pull things together pretty well? Or I acquired the book years ago, and I don't remember where it was probably a used bookstore and I thought, oh, I need to get my hands on this because I'd seen the movie several times. But I did read the book for the first time in preparation for our discussion. Oh, okay. And the the overall plot uh, and some of the critical dialogue is lifted directly from the book. Uh, there are some key points where things do differ. And there's some very interesting backstory that we'll get into later that is completely missing from the book that would be, and I understand why it's not in the movie, but Mm. the situation that arises in the movie makes more sense if you understand the backstory. So I thought it was good. Nebel and and Bailey were were journalists in Washington, D.C., and they definitely nailed the political aspects, I think, quite well. When they get to the the nuclear aspects, they're on much less solid footing. Mm-hmm. I can't entirely blame them for that because there was tremendous secrecy about the kind of stuff that they're talking about at mm-hmm. the time that they were writing about it. Although they did get some things quite right, uh, as we'll see. But there are some rather glaring problems that we'll get into later that I think sort of undermine what they were trying to do. But overall, no, it's good. I think it's a good ad- adaptation. There's some definite Serling-esque aspects yep. to it. Yep, It was pretty faithful. Well, that's good. And I'm, I'm glad you have the, the keen eye of trying to figure out uh, where things got right and wrong, but also firmly understanding that screenwriters sometimes are dealing with secrecy, sometimes they're dealing with a rushed need for script, and other times they're trying to match what people's expectations of nuclear use and what they were in portrayal versus what the reality is. Because if you show them sometimes the reality, they go, well, I haven't, that was not what it was in Dr. Strangelove or <laughs> something else. Um, but really this, this uh, movie cast here is a who's who of 1964. Uh, we'll kind of go through the different character roles uh, when we, when we talk about the plot, but there's a lot of people here who have also been in other nuclear movies, probably because they were every other movie in, in 1964 was a, a, a nuclear weapon movie <laughs> yeah. uh, between what strange love, um, Fail Safe was uh, was the same year. Uh, this movie, the year before, it was um, uh, Ladybug, Ladybug. Right. So a lot of nuclear movies right around this particular time. Right. Well, and even even Goldfinger, which which had yeah, a nuclear yeah. bomb aspect to it, came out in 1964. And a much less well-known film, actually, I should say another James Bond film, Thunderball, mm-hmm. 1965, which is directly about nuclear weapons. Uh, the much less well-known film, also starring Peter Sellers from... Uh, Dr. Strangelove fame, A Carol for Another Christmas, came out hmm. in 1964. It's only recently resurfaced on TCM and other places, but it's basically a version of A Christmas Carol that takes place post-nuclear holocaust. At least part <laughs> of it At least part of it does. Um, so again, something that was very much on the public's and screenwriters' minds. Uh, we're going to have to do that movie in December. That sounds great. <laughs> um, but yeah, we have, so we have Burt Lancaster. He plays the 
the the the very charismatic you know the villain in this movie is uh he's not like the emperor from star wars he is he is a very charismatic guy who can convince you th- through his charm uh he does you know most of the characters in this movie he does that and and you noted here that he was also in twilight last gleaming from 1977 which is another really good nuke movie and he plays a military officer in that one too we have kirk douglas uh, who plays a character named jiggs casey who is the works directly for burt lancaster I'll just note here that he was also in a, a pretty good movie about a sabotage effort during World War II to destroy a German heavy water plant called Heroes of Tilmark. And we know his son, Michael Douglas, is heavily involved uh, today through like the Plowshares Fund and other groups of, of, uh, dealing with nuclear disarmament, nuclear weapons issues. Uh, so clearly that's kind of trickled down. Frederick March plays the president. Uh, I wasn't able to find any other nuke movies he's been in, but he's a amazing actor in this film. You want to take it from here uh, about a uh, guy who plays Gerard, one of the White House aides? Oh, sure. Uh, Gerard, who in the book and also in this, although it's never really explicitly stated, is the president's appointment secretary, but also a close friend, is Martin Balsam. And Balsam also appeared in another nuclear-themed film, 1965's the Bedford incident, uh, which concerns a destroyer tracking a Soviet submarine hmm. in the Atlantic Ocean. Ava Gardner plays the really the only significant female role in the film, a woman named uh, Ellie Holbrook, who is the former, am I giving something away here too soon, the former lover of General Scott. I think that, that's, pretty, that's pretty quick in the, the, in the film. Okay, that, yeah. does, that does show up. Uh, and she was also in On the Beach in 1959, which is a very well-known nuclear film and, and book, obviously. John Houseman uh, plays a, a senior naval officer, uh, Admiral Barneswell. This is actually his film debut. People of a certain age will know him from The Paper Chase. Great, great movie. That is such a good his... movie. And last but not least, uh, General Scott, uh, Burt Lancaster's character, has a military aide, a Colonel Murdoch, who is Richard Anderson, who, again, people of a certain age will know as... Uh, the CIA's Oscar Goldman from The Six Million Dollar mm-hmm. Man. I think it was the CIA, right? So Something like that, I haven't yeah. seen that show in a long time. So a lot of familiar faces. I've not seen a lot of episodes of the Steve Austin story, but I, I don't remember if there's any nuclear plots. I'm sure there were, because I own the Six Million Dollar Man board game, and on the cover, it's about Steve Austin trying to stop a, a nuclear detonation or nuclear launch accidental, something like that. So it's on the cover of the game. It must have happened in one of the episodes. It might, you know, all of those in Wonder Woman, all of those superhero things from the 70s. I don't remember any. Well, I used to watch that when I was a kid, I hate to say. Uh, I don't mm-hmm. remember any nuclear. I do remember him meeting Bigfoot. So that was a big deal. There we go. <laughs> and who knows how Bigfoot got that big? Could be something nuclear. <laughs> This movie clearly is still uh, very strong, you know, in the sense that it's still culturally relevant today, which we'll which we'll get into. Sadly, it's very culturally relevant. But the movie was made a big impact at the time. You know, it had a two point two million dollar budget, and according to the sources I've seen, made a three point six five million. Which you know, nowadays you have to double to be able to break even. But back in those older studio days, that was actually fine for for what its success was. And Rotten Tomatoes, you know, the movie came out a long time ago, so the reviews aren't necessarily as relevant today as they were if they were. The contemporary, but 95% score that is fresh. So clearly, clearly pretty, pretty good. And it also was nominated for two Academy Awards, Best Actor in a Supporting Role, as well as Best Art Direction, Set Direction in a Black and White Picture. I don't think that category exists anymore to, 
today. But yeah, the only other point before we get into it here that I wanted to mention is the FBI hated this movie because they thought, along with Doctor Strangelove, this was a very anti-US, anti-democracy picture for the kind of content that it, that it talks about. But President Kennedy loved this movie. He loved the book. He encouraged Kirk Douglas to actually go out and do the movie and even agreed at one point he talked to the director and said, all right, you have this scene you want to film of uh, in front of the White House. What day do you want to film this? Because then I will go on vacation. So security will be more lax that day and would allow you to be able to film. And they were able to work that out uh, through some White House aides and everything. And the president liked this movie so much, he encouraged uh, Henry Fonda to play the president. And Henry Fonda couldn't do it, but Henry Fonda eventually, uh, that later that year when that movie was released, played the president in Failsafe. So it all kind of fits together. And that White House scene, is it's the opening scene of the movie. And knowing that it actually is the White House, I was wistful watching actual cars driving on Pennsylvania yeah. Avenue, which you can't do anymore, I think lends it a real verisimilitude. Uh, it's funny you mentioned about the FBI, because honestly, this film couldn't be more American. It is, it is fundamentally pro-democracy. Yes, of course, there is somebody who's trying to overthrow the president. But as Frederick March explains to the president in the critical climactic scene of the film, uh, it's all for you know, it's about defending the Constitution and the United States way of, of governance. So it, it couldn't be more American if you tried. So I, yeah. I guess I understand why some people in the FBI might. And certainly I understand why the military wouldn't like it. But it's an odd thing because it fundamentally comes down on the side of truth, justice and literally the American way. Right. No, it is very weird. And uh, but uh, recently released memos that were gotten through the Freedom of Information Act of they were talking about this film and Dr. Strangelove and a couple others as trying to, maybe we should monitor the director and figure out what's going on there. Pretty scary stuff. But before we get into the film, I just wanted to read one of those contemporary reviews because I, I find it very hilarious and it really does picture, you know, what people were thinking in 1964. So the New York Times review of the film called it a, a brave and forceful film. But this is where it starts. This is the start of the, 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 of the, uh, the review. It's beginning to look to us, though, the movies are out to scare us to death with dire and daring speculations of what might happen any day in Washington. First, we've had Dr. Strangelove, which tells us, between bursts of laughter, how helpless our government would be if a maniacal Air Force general tried to start a nuclear war. Now, in a film from the novel Seven Days in May, we are offered a similarly fearsome prospect of the crisis that might occur if another Air Force general planned to seize control of the government. Suffering cats and little kittens, exclamation mark. I don't know if that was a catchphrase back then, <laughs> but clearly this movie has uh, had an impact on people at the time. But yes, yeah, so let's run through the plot of the movie here. As usual, uh, spoiler warning. It's kind of funny to say spoiler warnings for movies from 1964. Uh, but if you're interested in this, you know, the movie is available on, on, on Amazon Prime and other places as well. It's like it's less than $10 on um, on Amazon if you wanted to buy it as well. Uh, so it is and out probably there. a number of libraries probably have yeah. the uh, the DVD. I just before you do that, I would just know it's pretty remarkable to think that you could have seen a in the same weekend you could have seen in the first run Doctor Strangelove and Seven Days in May because Doctor Strangelove uh -huh. opened in January 29th, 1964, delayed from November of 63 because of JFK's assassination, and then less than two weeks later on February 12th, Seven Days in May opened. So you had these two films these major, major films with big stars in theaters at the same time. It's just, it, it blows my mind today. And if you would have seen them as, uh, you know, back-to-back -back or back-to-back uh, -back weekends, uh, I don't know what mindset your brain would be at that point. <laughs> uh, 
that may be they probably should have just put out the people who were uh, offering to to build you a a bunker in your home, your back backyard shelter, to just have set up right outside of the movie theaters at that point. Right. Well, I think probably what concerned the FBI and other people about these movies wasn't so much the anti-American aspects; it's the fact that it was forcing people to think about mm -hmm. the dire threat of nuclear war, which honestly the government doesn't want you to think about. The less said, the better. Everything's under control. Don't worry, we're protecting you. And these movies make it very clear that that is not always the case. Absolutely. The movie was released in 1964, but they do this thing where uh, it's somewhere in the distant future, which is, I think, a really smart tool to do. Does the book do the same thing where it kind of places it in the 10 years later? The book is set in 1974, and there's some precipitating events that aren't mentioned at all in the movie that we can talk about later okay. that, that set the stage for this. But it is set in 74, and uh, they lined up the dates correctly and everything. Good. Okay. Well, uh, this is a, a near future, so there's no flying cars or handheld communicators, uh, but we do get some really interesting futurism, uh, things like video monitoring communications equipment, digital clocks, which I guess they, they were really insistent, like, this. no, this is the future, digital clocks, uh, and then video projector, big boards of military troop movements and missile movements and, and things like that. Uh, so I thought that was kind of interesting. looks quaint now, but it was trying to predict in the future uh, what was happening. So we the movie starts with this really interesting artistic depiction of a count up like one two three written like a pen as if john hancock himself was writing it over the constitution which is what we see in the, the background here and there's a drum beat uh, until we get to seven days in may which i thought was a really great way of starting this film and then it opens immediately which is pretty great it, it goes from the seals of the president with the arrows on there they get turned into missiles like intercontinental ballistic missiles or some form of maybe short-range missiles uh, which then become the fence posting with the, 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 the spikes on the White House fence where people now are outside protesting either in support of or against uh, some sort of treaty. We don't really know exactly, but it has something to do with the bomb uh, and President Jordan Lyman, uh, the U.S. president, you know, treaty. Some people are for it, some people are against it. We see images of this military leader, uh, which looks like a presidential campaign type thing. And then all of a sudden, there's a fight that breaks out right outside the White House. And then you mentioned, you know, the fact that it was filmed in, in front of the White House. And that was a really strong imagery for you. You know, what did you think of that opening scene? I thought it was a really great way of starting this film and telling telling us what the situation is within like two minutes. Exactly. So so you're 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 literally at the White House fence and you have these two groups of protesters marching silently, holding these signs. Again, you're not quite sure what's going on, but some of them are for the treaty and the president and some of them are against it. Most, in fact, I think all of the anti-presidential people are white men. <laughs> and the, the pro-nuclear disarmament, pro-president people, there's a few African-American faces sprinkled mm -hmm. in. And then one of the anti-presidential, pro-nuclear people takes his sign and gives a whack at another sign and a huge fight breaks out. And it's all, Frankenheimer shoots it in a very cinema verite kind of way. So you're like in the thick of this mm -hmm. fight and he's down like at ground level at some points and he, lots of punches are being thrown. And it goes on for quite a while. Then the police show up and zoom down Pennsylvania Avenue and break it up. I'm not quite sure why the Secret Service wasn't there breaking it up, but anyway, yeah. maybe they weren't outside the fence at that point. It's obvious that there is real deep dissension on this particular issue and about this president at this time. And then you immediately go into the White House and 
the film proper starts. So. Uh, that fight scene looks real because according to uh, the director commentary on the DVD, it was real because they got members of a, a local motorcycle gang and then put <laughs> no. them put them into suits and everything. And the people, they weren't trained actors or anything. So they were like, okay, well, we do this thing just when we're hanging out. So they started throwing punches and hecklers started to get involved and they went into the fight. And uh, Frankenheimer had to pull them out and throw them and then they got arrested and it does start chaotically. And I think so that's why it looks so real. Well, yeah. congratulations. You, you can get away with that back then. I don't think the unions were as strong in the, in the film <laughs> industry. But we learned the reason why this is happening. There, the U.S. president has decided to negotiate and sign. I guess at this point he had signed the treaty, but it had not been ratified yet. Is that correct? Correct. The treaty, okay. the treaty takes effect in, I believe they say it in the film, but it's definitely in the book. It takes effect July the 1st. So it had been ratified? It had been ratified. He pushed it through the Senate with, I think, two votes to spare. If I remember correctly from the book, Jordan Lyman is a Democrat. I don't believe the Democrats have the majority in the Senate. I could be wrong about that. But if they do, it's a very tenuous one. So very much like today. That, that's amazing because that's never happened that I can think of of a Democratic president getting an arms control or thing treaty through uh a non-democratic Senate was the non-proliferation treaty, which had not happened yet. Correct. No treaties had happened yet apart from the limited test ban treaty the year before. Okay. The movie basically assumes that this president who is incredibly unpopular because of this, his numbers are like 29% they mentioned at one point, uh, which is, you know, worse than, worse than president Trump's worse than president George W. Bush's second term, pretty low, but he still was able to get it through the Senate. I think that's got to be some amazing use of political capital <laughs> there. That may be the most unrealistic thing about the movie. But the president is, is very optimistic. He says that change is very scary to people. He's very worried that, you know, people may not understand what the treaty is trying to do, but he knows that we can continue to do what's good for the economy, which would be to build up the, the weapons of war and, and get everybody scared while it's good and people maybe can understand what that means and are scared by change will ultimately destroy the world. So he feels like his numbers will improve. Hopefully his blood pressure will improve because he's in the middle of this opening scene with we find the president in the Oval Office. He's getting his like annual checkup. And his uh, doctor is telling him to go on a two-week vacation right in the middle of all of this. Correct. Yeah. And he said he's the last time he was on a vacation, it was he was six months old. So, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> he's definitely, yeah. Um, okay. Well, we can talk, like I said, there is some backstory about this treaty when you want to get into no, that. No, let's go, do it now. But... Let's, let's do it okay. now. So what, uh, what is the treaty? Because they don't really go into great detail other than to say, like, two, within two months, all the weapons and deployed weapons and everything will be dis dismantled, destroyed. Right. Is there any more detail in the book? Yeah, there is a lot. And and it's I, I think I understand why I guess Rod Serling and Frankenheimer decided not to go into it because it would have been this is a very talky film and it actually would make a great play if somebody wanted to adapt it into a play it would be perfectly suited for that so I think I understand why they didn't do that it is a little bit confusing how this all happened so the precipitating events here are that in 1971 the Soviet Union invades Iran and the United States goes to fight it ends up being something of a stalemate. It doesn't look like nuclear weapons are used. It looks like it's a purely conventional war. Mm -hmm. But the result is a partition of Iran, kind of like Germany okay. at the end of World War II. And the public is furious at the then Republican president, Edgar Frazier, for allowing this to happen. And he's thrown out of office because of the partition in the war in 1972. And Jordan Lyman 
his elected president because he says, and it's in the book and I was going to quote it, but he basically says, I will never give up an inch of soil in the name of freedom. I will never stop fighting. Mm -hmm. And he's elected overwhelmingly. And then this is in 1972. And then in, I guess, shortly after that, he negotiates this treaty. In the movie, it's just a treaty with the Soviet Union. And it's a little unclear about what it is. It's yeah. this disarmament treaty. In the book, it's a multilateral treaty with every nuclear power, United States, Russia, Britain, France, and China. China wasn't actually a nuclear power until later. In they, just, they just assumed. They just assumed in 1974 China would be, and that was a fair assumption. It's a treaty to that requires the elimination of neutron bombs. We've moved beyond atomic bombs and uh. hydrogen bombs. We now have neutron bombs which apparently are much worse than hydrogen bombs. The treaty apparently only requires the elimination of the bombs, not the delivery systems. Hmm. Uh, it is, is, a, it is a, a verifiable treaty. It will be verified by inspectors from India and Finland. The dismantlement will take place at Los Alamos in the United States and Semipalatinsk huh. in the Soviet Union, now in Kazakhstan. And the deal is that every month, 10 neutron bombs will be dismantled uh, and and all the all the states that have these weapons will take part. It doesn't say exactly how lesser states like the UK and France will, and I guess China at that point mm -hmm. will uh, do that since they would have fewer weapons. But the plan is that within two years, by 1976, all the nuclear weapons will be gone, and that this will be verifiable. There's some problems here in that that's 10 bombs a month. That's 120 bombs a year. Uh, the United States alone in 1960 or had over 25,000 nuclear weapons. So it's going to take too long uh, to do this. That's the impetus. And uh, the, the real sense is that there was a, a war scare, much like there was after the Cuban Missile Crisis, and that that's what led the public and the Senate in particular, and the president, obviously, to back the idea of this treaty, because we didn't want to see the world go to the brink again. So that's the backstory. And but the president starts uh, out as being a very, uh, I don't want to say like pro war, but he is willing to say like, I'm I am going to defend every piece of soil. Is that what you're saying? Or is it the person who he defeated was the one that was saying that? No, no, no. That's the, the Frazier, Edgar Frazier, who was the previous president, Republican, was thrown out because he allowed the partition to happen. And maybe, although it's not explained, okay. maybe because they didn't anticipate that the Soviet Union was going to invade. In any case, Iran was, for some reason, extremely important to mm -hmm. the United States at that time. Kind of rings the bell today, right? So yeah. the, there's even an exchange between, very early in the book, between uh, Jiggs Casey, who is the protagonist in the movie, mm. and a friend of his, uh, Colonel Henderson, who we'll get into later, they both actually fought in Iran on the front lines. Mm. They said, as, and, you know, as soon as the partition happened, that was it. They weren't going to support the Republican president anymore. And, you know, they, they had to vote Democratic uh, in order to, you know, defend the American way of life and so forth. So uh, it was that was a huge deal. And it's, it's very interesting. So the president comes in, this Democratic president comes in, uh, probably with the, you know, the pop a popular movement behind him because of what he says about how he's going to defend and not allow partitions and things. But then makes the decision to do an arms control, you know, disarmament treaty, basically, uh, probably only able to do that from that initial position of strength, which would then make it even interesting. Then that this the military, the charismatic military leader General Scott, 
when he comes into the fold, you know, he you could see a whiplash effect happening there. Um, but I'll, I just want to note here, you mentioned how this would make a really good play. Apparently it was done as a play, but not for hmm. very long in the L.A. theater works. Fred Thompson. Fred Thompson, I believe, played the president uh, in the movie. Either the president or it looks like he played the president. And then there were some other people and Ed Eisner uh, as well. Ed Eisner, right. Yeah. Yeah. LA Theater Works does great radio plays, actually. So I think, I think that's what it is. You can buy the audio book somewhere. Um, Excellent. So now I'm going to have to check that out, too. So let's uh, there's there's two things here before we kind of get move on. Uh, you know, one is we see this scene of the president um, deciding to take a break from the Oval Office because this doctor says, He needs two weeks of vacation, but instead he'll just get a couple laps in the pool. And then when the president's swimming, we get a scene of the nuclear football. And that's kind of one of the things that you, in addition to much of your work, you know, you're known a lot uh, on Twitter as being uh, the great keeper of all of the photos and documenting every time the nuclear football, which is the the satchel, the the emergency satchel that the president can use to authenticate uh, him or herself and issue orders for the use the deployment of nuclear weapons tracking that when it gets gets in public and kind of what it was done uh you know back 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 in the day and kind of the, all of the history of the nuclear football i hope that one day you write a, a book about uh the nuclear football but we see images in the movie in this movie of the nuclear football we, we see the president mentions at one point that there are five of them that they follow him around everywhere even the swimming pool he's literally the guy who's holding it is literally just sitting by the pool hope he doesn't drop it uh into the <laughs> pool uh and then the president makes this little joke the doctor worries about my blood pressure. <clears throat> you know where that gentleman is down there with the black box. There are five of them. You know the one of them sits outside my bedroom at night? You know what they carry in that box? The codes. The codes by which I, Jordan Lamb, can give the order sending us into a nuclear war. Instead of my blood pressure, I think horror should worry about my sanity. How does this uh, depiction of the nuclear football look to you? Well, it is, it's absolutely correct that there is a military aide that follows the president around 24 hours a day, seven days a week, with a briefcase that contains everything he would need to initiate the use or authorize the use of nuclear weapons. There's no literal red button either in there or you know on the president's desk, but it does contain communications equipment, war plans, and codes that would allow the president anywhere in the world to say, okay, here's what we're here's what we're going to do. So it's a nice and it's interesting because the football didn't actually exist till very late in the Eisenhower administration. And the first pictures we have are actually during the Kennedy administration. So it's actually mm. a very new concept at this point. In the film it's a little bit too um dainty for me if i can say that it's small uh, it, it's about the size of like a little handbag like a, almost like a, a makeup kit yeah or like a clarinet case even it's uh as opposed to an actual briefcase but uh but it is an interesting contrast that you've got this little thing that can do something extremely mm. large and and destroy at least facilitate these the destruction of the world but it does show up this is the i believe the first time it appears in the film but it does show up elsewhere it's never really commented on although in the book one character says to another what is that and it's like it's a senior aide to the it's a cabinet officer. And, you know, <laughs> General K, Colonel Casey is like, it's amazing that this cabinet officer has no idea what this thing is. Yeah. Uh, so it's there in the background, always lurking is this idea, this this, you know, that the president has this ability. And then, of course, you know, the fight between the president and General Scott, you wonder what he would do if he had control of that of that. He would keep it attached to his own wrist. 
uh, <laughs> so interesting the way you describe it as this the small box that could do you know cast a big shadow kind of thing uh, but I also thought that the way that they filmed the aid, so the president gets up from the pool, drying himself off, makes his little joke about his sanity, and he walks off. And you just see the military attache, you know, sitting there, and he holds, he has the, the on his lap, like he's, you know, like a little school book. And then he, he just looks up, and he, it almost as if the president doesn't want him there, and he's just like a specter of death following him. And if the president could have his wishes, that would be kept somewhere else. But he never is allowed to get away from the football, from his line of sight. I think I thought that was definitely some sort of a, a, a purposeful attempt by the uh, director. And I wish he would have commented on it during the pool scene in the movie. But he was talking about tennis matches with some friend of his from another uh, another celebrity or something else. And he wasn't talking about the scene that we actually were seeing. Which is too right. bad because I want him. There was no real discussion at all about the nuclear plot in the director commentary, which is very disappointing. Uh, really mm. interesting stories, but I wanted to see what he thought about this, as opposed to it kind of just seemed like a job to him, and it wasn't necessarily anything more. It doesn't have to be anything more, but it, I wish there was something else there. Right in the in the book, the the football is very much on the president's mind. He comments about it at several points and very close to the beginning he notes and it's just an internal dialogue on his part jordan lima would never forget the hour he had spent shaken and depressed after receiving his first full briefing on the mechanics by which he alone could in some fatal moment of crisis open the floodgates of nuclear war and that's interesting not only in the context of the film but because there are also actual presidents who have talked about the impact that briefing that has had on them. And it's the briefing they get right before they're sworn in and how it does leave them awed and in some cases depressed. And in most cases, presidents never want to think about it again. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. yet this person is following them around everywhere. And as you said, I, I try to curate photographs of that, uh, not to alarm people, but just to really remind people that this is, this is reality. This is there. This is happening now and the president whoever he is in this case it's donald trump has this awesome power at his disposal 24 hours a day and literally mm -hmm. nobody legally can from can prevent him from exercising that power should he choose to yeah and if people want to follow this uh you know go on twitter and follow you at uh, atomic analyst on twitter and you can definitely see when when images pop up when there was the the big skirmish in when he when the president was in china which which separated him from the football then there was all the different things at mar-a-lago about people taking photos with the person that had the football so it it pops up in the news quite a bit all right so back to the film we understand that the president is unnerved by nuclear weapons so that's why we have the treaty and but we know that there's this opposition because his poll numbers are down. People are fighting in front of the White House, and now we get to see the face of the opposition—the very handsome, chiseled face of U.S. Air Force General James Mattoon Scott, played by Burt Lancaster. He's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, which means he was appointed by the president. Correct. They refer to him as the reincarnation of George Washington. So he's very charming. Uh, and he's testifying to the Senate, which I thought was interesting. So if it had already been ratified, I guess this is a post-ratification testimony. Uh, so he's against the, the, the ban treaty. I'll make the point again, Senator. I think the signing of a nuclear disarmament pact with the Soviet Union is at best an act of naivete and at worst an unsupportable negligence. We've stayed alive because we've built up an arsenal and we've kept the peace because we've dealt with an enemy who knew we would use that arsenal. And now we're asked to believe that a piece of paper 
will take the place of missile sites and Polaris submarines. And that an enemy who hasn't honored one solemn treaty in the history of its existence will now, for our convenience, do precisely that. I have strong doubts, General. Yeah, the face of the opposition, pretty much. Exactly. And it's clear that there are some, there's at least one senator, and that, that scene takes place before the Senate Armed Services Committee, the chairman of that committee, Senator Prentice from mm -hmm. California, is clearly on General Scott's side. So actually, I guess in the film, so the Democrats are in the majority there, okay? I might be misremembering the, the, the book, but the, clearly the Democrats are in the majority. Uh, so the chairman is on Scott's side, and yet the treaty did ultimately pass the Senate. We do meet another uh, senator, um, Senator Ray Clark, who in this in the movie he's portrayed, his character arc goes from, you know, at this point he's a very, uh, you know, he's a functioning alcoholic, essentially, who is a f good, close friend of the president. Uh, he, he tries to defend the treaty in this testimony uh, during this hearing, you know, says, look, if the military was the one who would make the political decisions, then they would never get rid of the bomb because it's, it's a mission tool for them. They're not interested in particularly getting rid of the bomb. We see... Also, in the, in the I think our first time we end up seeing uh, Colonel Martin Jiggs Casey, played by Kirk Douglas. He's kind of the, he's the director of the uh, uh, the joint the Joint Chiefs of Staff team. Uh, the, the, his staff. He's active Marine. He's the current. He's an aide to uh, General Scott, and um, he's kind of there with the te you know he's whispering into the General Scott's ear and and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and then we end up seeing right after the testimony is over. We see Jiggs get into to his work. He goes to his office. He's running through the memos, and uh, one of one of the aides uh, who works for him is being very talkative and is talking about some sort of message that is going back and forth between General Scott and a bunch of other of the top people, like a strategic uh, command, uh, Sinpac, uh, first airborne commanders, and other heads of the armed forces. But it's weird. It's about like a horse racing bet for the Preakness, which is one of the three main horse racing races right along with the kentucky derby and another one that i don't know <laughs> i'm forgetting the name too yeah yeah obviously we're not big horse racing fans right so we would not be placing bets on this stuff but um it sounds like what they were saying is is that pretty much everybody has uh agreed to the bet they've all put their ten dollar deposit down except for one of them which is admiral barnsworth from the navy he he he's one of the only people who hasn't done it Last call annual Preakness pool. Top secret code, too. Ten dollars already deposited with Murdoch. Give length your pick will win. Deadline 1700 Saturday. Post time 1900 Sunday, 18 May. Scott, where'd this come from? Uh, General Scott's aide, you know, Colonel Murdoch. He gave me that message at uh, 0725 this morning. Did you get that name, Colonel? General Scott. Yeah, I'm so disillusioned I could sit down and cry. My hero turns out to be a bookie. So this sounds weird to 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 Jigs, he, but he thinks it's probably just like a joke. Yeah, he it's kind of it's a joke for him. But then we meet uh, Colonel Murdoch, who's a, another aide to to General Scott, and, and he uh, does not like the fact that this is being discussed openly. This was supposed to be a secret message, and therefore that makes Jigs kind of like this is weird, and it starts to get him thinking that maybe something's happening, but he has no idea what possibly could be happening right now. Right. And he is, by the way, the other race is the Belmont Stakes. So those 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 three make the triple crown. Jiggs, and they never explain what Jiggs is. It's his nickname. Um, but Martin Colonel Casey is basically the, he's in charge of the running the Joint Chiefs of Staff Office. So everything is supposed to run through him. And so his, when he realizes that he hasn't heard about <clears throat> these things, his, his little antenna 
perk up. It's a little bit clearer in the book. Uh, I don't know whether it was the script or Kirk Douglas is acting, but it's not entirely clear what his internal thought process here, how he goes from being unquestioning to starting to wonder whether there's something mm -hmm. nefarious going on here. But in any case, you're right. These, these things happen. And he starts wondering, well, why haven't I heard about this? And another thing he hasn't heard about is he runs into an old friend who, as you mentioned, used to they, they fought in the, the war in Iran. But I think in the movie, he's just an old military friend that he's worked with. Uh, and the friend's like, I can't believe I've been sent out to the desert uh, out in, uh, I believe, is it is it Arizona, New Mexico? He says it's near El Paso. Near El, pa near El Paso. So he says he's asked to join this very mysterious group called EcomCon. And they don't really say what that is. You know, I joked on Twitter that it sounds like a, a comic convention <laughs> where Thomas Friedman gets together uh, with his movie to show drop movie trailers. Or it could be like an e-commerce uh, comic convention or something. I don't know. But EcomCon, we don't know what it is. It's just something called Site Y. It's something mysterious, but you would think that Jiggs would know, right? Yeah, and he thinks he, he, he doesn't, he, he's never heard of, he plays along. With his friend, he tries to um, elicit some additional information and comes to the realization that he knows absolutely nothing about this. And that's this is what really sets the, the plot rolling. And what his what his big focus is, what Jiggs' big focus is this week is on Sunday of that week. So I, I believe it starts on on Monday and on Sunday of that, uh, you know, the end of the week, he is going to be doing a big, red, you know, big alert, a big red alert drill. Uh, where they're going to simulate an incoming attack and kind of what people's response is. And I believe it's an incoming like nuclear attack. And so that the uh, the bombers are able to get scrambled and get out, out into the air for their airborne alerts, uh, that missiles can run through their drills pretty quickly, essentially going to run through an exercise. Uh, hopefully they've told the Russians that they're doing this. <laughs> now it's a full it's a full-scale secret exercise the Russians may have found out on their own way they they did do a previous version of this exercise yeah, it didn't go so good and the well they said it didn't go so great it actually it, it was it was fine um but the uh the whole idea is that they're going to evacuate the president they're going to get ready to flush the bombers they're gonna they're gonna do everything short of actually starting a war to see how quickly they can prepare uh, in the event of a surprise nuclear attack, which was a big and real concern at that point in time. Not at all unusual that the military would do that, although, as we learn later, the reason that Scott is doing this uh, drill is not what he says it is. And he, he knows something's weird because he goes to a cocktail party for, he gets invited to a cocktail party, as people do, I guess, in D.C., uh, and he's asked he, by two senators to give his opinion of the treaty. Let's hear the view of someone a little more knowledgeable as to the Soviet Union's capacity to destroy us. Colonel Casey? Well, as a military officer, I steer clear of politics. Let's forget for the moment that you're a military officer, Colonel. You also happen to be a citizen. And then I'll have to take the fifth. <laughs> Colonel, do you like the treaty or don't you? The treaty isn't viewed very favorably. Neither are income taxes, but we pay them. But you make me think that that fruit salad on your chest is for neutrality, evasiveness, and fence straddling. On the contrary, Senator, there's standard awards for cocktail courage and dinner table heroism. I thought you'd invented them. Excuse me, Paul. You know, he tries to stay out of it. He tries to uh, follow the Hatch Act, which says you're not allowed to when you wear the uniform, talk about policy or politics. and Being a good soldier, right. But one of the senators you mentioned earlier from California kind of winks at him and says, you know, look, we're on the same side. 
be alert for Sunday. Uh, it's unclear whether or not he should know about the alert. Maybe because of his role on the Senate Armed Services, he might know about it. But Jiggs believes that he shouldn't know anything about it. So it's something weird that's going on there. We also get introduced at this cocktail party to, to Ellie Holbrook, which you mentioned is played by Ava Gardner. It's kind of clear at this point that she kind of likes Jiggs, but she also is an old flame of, of General Scott. Jiggs calls her, because it's the 1960s, a beautiful dame when she's sober. Sober, Ellie. You're a bright, beautiful dame. Good to have around. And she's clearly a little inebriated or maybe more than a little at this party. <laughs> right. No, she she's taking the cocktail part of the cocktail party pretty seriously. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so she's that's kind of we get introduced to her. But what is her equivalent analog in the book? Because we don't really know much about her at this point. We know that she is a friend of Jig's. They have a little bit of a flirtatious thing. It's a little aggressive on on Jig's side, a little mean. But it's, it's clear she, she's involved. She, she's in like the community of right. people here and she has some kind of connection to general scott so her character exists in the book but she's a different person if that makes sense the character of ellie holbrook is actually a young television writer who lives in new york city hmm. with whom Jiggs had a one-night stand some years earlier when he had to go up and do some work at the united nations and i should note that in the book Jiggs is actually married and has two teenage boys that was hmm. all eliminated I guess, to provide some sort of love interest for him in the movie, or maybe just to simplify things. It's right. not a major plot point in the book. The character who was actually friends with, shall we say at this point, General Scott, is a woman named Millicent Senier, who also lives in New York City. It's a good who's name. A fashion editor, right. Who's the fashion editor of a women's magazine called Cherie. And she only is referenced. She never actually appears hmm. in, the, in the book. She's only referenced by this... Eleanor Holbrook character who has the nickname of Shoe, S H O O. Why everybody jigs in Shoe? I, why nobody ever explains what that nickname means. But in any case, all of that happens in New York City, and she never actually shows up at this cocktail party hmm. in, in the film. But that's, I just thought that was kind of an interesting diversion. We see a few more scenes that cause, you know, jigs to get a little bit more uh, wary of what's happening. Uh, he drives back to the base because he he's works all night and everything, you know, getting ready for the alert, probably. And he sees a car pulling up to the general's house with a California license plate. And it, it's clear that this is the the, Calif the senator from California. Uh, so he they go, oh, they must be up late. But then when he gets to the Pentagon the next day and he's and he's going over the, the red alert uh, drill and all the planning. At one point, Jig says, oh, you must have been, you know, out late last night in the uh general scott says no i went to sleep very early so clearly he's like lying about something yeah he said he slept from eight to eight and he had too much sleep right and so now jiggs knows he's lying by the way he went after the party jiggs was so alarmed by senator prentice's comment about the alert even mm -hmm. if it was sort of an offhand you know vague thing it suggested he knew about the alert when he shouldn't that he drove to general scott's house in fort myer oh right george down to fort myer virginia to alert the general that somebody on the hill was aware. And that's when he sees Prentice driving up and Scott's come out to greet him and it's raining. And, you know, it's like, wait a minute, why is, first of all, why is Prentice there? And second of all, apparently Prentice does know about this alert. Jiggs is already worried that his boss, General Scott, isn't giving him the whole truth. So that's when he kind of asks him these leading questions. Scott out and out lies to him. And that's at the point where I think Jiggs's brain starts to go into overdrive that there's something not quite right here. He still doesn't know what it is, but 
the general's never lied to him before. So what's going on? Yeah, no, it's a it's a really interesting scene. It's not one you have to really pay attention to to kind of get the the sequences of things here. The political dramas, thrillers back then were you have to really be paying attention. Uh, but if you were paying attention closely to the screen on the TV uh, when they're going over the drill of what happened the last time they did the drill, you may notice some interesting things. You see the the fact they mentioned earlier. We as we mentioned earlier, the B fifty twos weren't being scrambled on time. The president's helicopters over Mount Thunder. We're not secure, uh, and then that's why they're going to have this drill on, on Sunday. And if uh, I love the little detail here, when you see the scene of the B-47s uh, taxiing at, at right field during the, the, the previous alert, that's actually footage from a propaganda film by called Strategic Air Command, I believe that Curtis LeMay had put together in response to uh, some accusations of uh, not being, uh, we weren't really ready for everything that we needed to be. Uh, so that footage is directly taken from a real drill, but from a different perspective. So I believe the Strategic Air Command that those scenes were showing that everything's fine and not necessarily a depiction of something going wrong. Uh, right, right. Uh, Mount Thunder gets which men, gets mentioned uh, because the General Scott says he was very excited about the fact that he, he gets the president to agree to General Scott's request to go to Mount Thunder without any sort of press people there to run through the drill, to see the drill. Right. Um, as as it's happening. So you want to maybe talk a little bit about uh, what Mount Thunder is and kind of what it might be a reference to? Sure. So so this is like a command exercise. They're basically running through what would happen should the United States be the victim of a surprise attack. They need to evacuate the president. At that point, in the conceit of the film, the president would fly by helicopter to Mount Thunder in Virginia. And Mount Thunder is a real place, actually. It's Mount Weather near Berryville, Virginia, and it was one of the big underground emergency relocation sites slash command posts in the event of a nuclear war. The president could have also go somewhere else, but in this case, he's mm-hmm. going to, to Mount Thunder. So it is a real place. It wasn't widely known, but it was sort of an open secret here in Washington, D.C., that this, that this existed, because you can't completely hide, you know, thousands of people in a massive yeah. underground facility, certainly from the people in the in the local area. This is also the facility, by the way, where the congressional leadership, apart from Senator uh, Robert Byrd, was evacuated on 9-11. They, they took helicopters from the Capitol to Mount Weather and waited out the attacks until mm-hmm. they realized that it wasn't gonna go any further than it, than it did. So it hasn't ever actually been used for its intended purpose, but it's there and it continues to, uh, to exist today. And what's significant about General Scott's request in the movie is that he's getting the president to go there alone mm-hmm. without military people and probably without most of his aides. The idea being that he will function as the president during this drill, but there may be also something more nefarious going on, as we'll, we'll see later. Yeah, we may have seen references to, well, you if you follow this podcast, you'll heard re- about references to uh, Mount Weather in the episode we did on Madam Secretary. Uh, they refer to the the civilian staff at the for the Secretary of State would go to Matt Weather. Uh, and also, I believe it is the location of what's going to be, I think they mentioned at one point uh, in the movie, Some of All Fears, where the president is doing his drills at the start of the movie is meant to mm-hmm. be the equivalent of, of Mount uh, Weather, but it was actually filmed at the Canadian facility that was now decommissioned, but the same idea there, not for deployment of nuclear weapons, but that's be, would, where they would go to in the event of a nuclear attack. Yeah, it, as uh, all good plans um, fall apart, once you get the first uh, interaction with your opposition, 
General Scott's plan, which we're starting to see unravel a little bit of the secret of nature of it because Jiggs uh, learns that there was this big uh, meeting uh, between the different uh, services and different heads of the services, but the Navy... All the Joint Chiefs meet, right. Right, exactly. right. so Naval, uh, naval uh, representation was not there. Uh, you know, And also he's like, oh yeah, Ad- Admiral Barnesworth was the only one who said that he didn't agree to the horse bet. So there must be maybe this... He's starting to think that this might be some sort of a, a secret message. And what finally is, I think, that the nail... Uh, in, in this coffin um, is when Jiggs is at home and he turns on the television, he sees, uh, you know, General Scott give basically a campaign speech um, about how we need to start to, he gets introduced by uh, more or less the equivalent of Sean Hannity. Uh, and it really unnerves um, Jiggs because he, as we learned earlier, really believes that their military should not be involved in the politics and the policy. They I would like to thank Mr. McPherson for his most laudatory comments. Perhaps patriotism is old-fashioned. Perhaps love of country is outdated. Perhaps even a minute degree of sentiment to one's motherland is to be considered passé. But God help us, and God help our country, if the cynics, the one-worlders, the intellectual dilettantes ever persuade us that these things have passed us by. Because, ladies and gentlemen, patriotism, Loyalty, sentiment, they are the United States of America! We have a perverse habit of forgetting the Operator, would you connect me to the White House, please? Or the way. That's where he places a call and says he wants to talk to the president in the middle of the night and then ends up going back to the White House to do that. Right, he starts putting all these pieces together. The one part you left out is that after this, when Scott and Jake's meet in Scott's office, uh, Scott says to Jiggs, I want to see you after this meeting with the Joint Chiefs. So uh, Jiggs walks into the room that's known as the tank in the Pentagon where the Joint Chiefs meet. And it's got, you know, boards on the wall right. today with TV monitors and so forth. And, you know, all the other military officers has le- have left. Jiggs sort of absentmindedly sees a piece of crumpled paper in an ashtray. Right, right. And it picks it up. It's, it's from the Air Force, uh, the head of the Air Force's desk and palms it. And then later looks at it, and it also it mentions this base, Ecomcon, that his military friend had mentioned to him earlier in the day. And it mentions something about an airlift and some other things. And he's not quite sure what it means, but again, his little antenna are going up. And then you're right, he sees this speech, which mm-hmm. is like this over-the-top political speech. And it's not just that military off- active military officers shouldn't be getting involved in politics. It's that legally they can't. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like against the law. And so this is, uh, but again, I guess it's a testament to the, uh, the the fervor in the country that Scott can get away with this and that people are, he's not apparently actively running for anything, but it's clear that if he did, there would be a lot of support. And Jiggs is so unnerved that he, he goes to talk to the president in the middle of the night. He says that he doesn't know what EcomCon means, but in the military parlance, if everything was the same, it would mean something along the lines of emergency communications control. Uh, and he was talking about how his friend earlier was like, it's weird. We're not really drilling to in part of EcomCon for prevention of these things. It's more like seizure. Like we're going to come and take control over emergency communications and things right. like that. The commies already control it and we're getting it back. So he, you know, he, he's like, wow, this, this could be a thing where... They could seize control over uh, television, communications, radio, uh, and all the military would take that over in the in the event of this crisis. So he says, look, when you put all these different pieces together, he says he thinks that 
the horse race messages are code for military takeover of the government. You got something against the English language, Colonel? No, sir. Then speak it plainly, if you will. I'm suggesting, Mr. President, there's a military plot to take over the government. This may occur sometime this coming Sunday. And it's clear during this uh, exchange, he doesn't want it to be true. He's not like an enthusiastic proponent of this theory. He, he can barely even explain it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but he wants the information to be there and he wants the, the you know, he, he wants to get the ball rolling to see if people can, can verify stuff. And if, well, ultimately, we... we we learned from calls that Gerard places to the uh, head of the, what, the OMB, basically. The Bureau of the Budget, which is what it was called at that point, yeah. So in the middle of the night, they get the head of the Bureau <laughs> of the Budget online. It's like, hey, have you ever heard of this secret base? It's somewhere near El Paso, you know, get back to us. Because, of course, everything has to be properly, even a secret base has to, money has to be authorized. You know, Jiggs leaves and the, uh, you know, Gerard, uh, the president's friend and aide, goes to him and says, no, he's never... He's never heard of this before. No money has ever, you know, and the president doesn't remember anything about it either. So suddenly they're like, hmm, you know, maybe there's something to this. Yeah. Well, well, let's uh, let's get into this little bit of a side thing here. Uh, how hard is it to uh, to track uh, what is being spent on the nuclear arsenal? Would someone need to like, I don't know, like write a book about this or edit together a big piece? Because it seems like it's a pretty hard thing to track all of this, even if the president in this movie doesn't know what's going on. Right, right. Well, um, of course, the ComCon was not a nuclear base per se, but I think your point is um, is germane. Uh, actually, in 1962, President Kennedy issued a directive in May of all times, 1962, <laughs> asking the Bureau of Budget to work with the Secretary of Defense to develop a procedure to compile, quote, a statement of the cost of nuclear weapons provided for the national defense, including both the cost of delivery systems provided in the defense budget and the cost funded in the budget of the Atomic Energy Commission, unquote. And the reason that he did that is that there was no way to understand. He wanted to know, Robert McNamara, the Secretary of Defense, wanted to know, and nobody knew what the costs were. They were split between the Department of Defense for all the delivery systems and the command and control and all of that, and then the Atomic Energy Commission for the warheads and the bombs and the research development and testing associated with and the maintenance associated with that. But there was no one budget line item. And even within the Department of Defense, there was no budget. Hmm. So you might know how much the Air Force was spending on, you know, B-52 bombers or, you know, Atlas ICBMs or how much the Navy was spending on Polaris submarines, maybe. But nobody was keeping track of all of it. And uh, it's funny you should mention writing a book because that's something yeah. that I did four yeah, years yeah. ago. Yeah, and uh, we that's what I was Yeah, <laughs> trying to figure it out. We we naively assumed that somebody must be tracking this, and all we would have to do is, you know, go into the archives or have some very targeted FOIA requests, and we would unearth all this information and analyze it, and we would know. And it turns out nobody was hmm. was tracking it, which is one reason why we had. A nuclear arsenal that at its peak in 1967 reached over 31,000 operational nuclear weapons, not mm. to mention the tens of thousands of delivery systems associated with that. So at the time, it was almost impossible for even the president to understand how much we were expending on a you know daily or monthly basis. 
Yeah, I mean the the book you you edited together, it's a you know it's a thick book, uh, and it covers a wide variety of different elements, whether it's research and design, uh, historical material production, the uh, if if we were to go through and dismantle the weapons, how much that would cost, what you would need to do for, you know, the full life cycle of the the arsenal. And everything that's necessarily involved in it. So I'd really recommend people, I'm going to recommend at the end of the podcast episode that people, you know, read it. And of course, you know, it's from 1998, right? We have to stop sometime, yes. Right? <laughs> uh, so it is a it is a particular moment in history of, you know, the end of the Cold War, but before 9-11. So it is a really fascinating look at it. And I wish uh, there was another book along those lines today uh, to continue to track that stuff. But it is... Well, today, fortunately, thanks to some, some um, far-sighted congressional intervention, which I had a little part in, the Congressional Budget Office, then the Bureau of the Budget. So now today, uh, every other year or so, issues a report about what it is that we spend on an annual basis and then going forward over the next several decades, what good, we're going to spend on, on all of this. So it's not super detailed, but it does give you a very good overall picture. And at least there we can understand you know, what the trends are, and they're going up, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, this is a, it's good to, that it didn't take, um, you know, you having to place some midnight calls, 3 a.m. calls to uh, cabinet officials for this. Uh, but, you know, Jiggs is, uh, he's asked by some of these people in the White House when the president uh, is trying to assemble a team of people, his various advisors and best friends and congressional allies and things, you know, Jiggs mentions that he, uh, he even he tells the president straight up that he doesn't agree with the treaty. If you have to ask him if you're going to force him and bend his arm, you know, backwards, he doesn't think the treaty is good, but the military needs to follow orders. I know what Scott's attitude is on the treaty, Colonel. What's yours? I agree with General Scott, sir. I think we're being played for suckers. I think it's really your business. Yours in the Senate. You did it and they agreed, so well, I don't see how we in the military can question it. I mean, we can question it, but we can't fight it. We shouldn't, anyway. But the actual debate, uh, what I kind of really enjoyed about this is that the some people in the president's team he brings in, you know, thinks that it's paranoid. It's got to be something else. They send everybody out. Senator Ray Clark gets sent to where the secret base may be to see what's going on there. Gerard is sent to go talk to Admiral Barnesworth and get a written confession some sort of statement from him. And then Jiggs is ordered to be basically a spy, an informant on General Scott, which is not something that Jiggs wants to do because General <laughs> Scott is, uh, there's great scenes in this movie where some of, um, I don't know who exactly, I forget who Christopher Todd is in the movie. like that character. The Secretary of the Treasury. Thank you. Um, so he is very dismissive of General Scott, calls him a, a, a warmonger or um, you know he mocks him later on for other things. And Jiggs is like, no, look, for whatever he's doing now, he is a decorated, you know, multiple Purple Heart winner. Uh, like, this is a guy who you need to be respecting, despite the fact that he's doing what he's doing. So he's really conflicted by this. And I, you can, Kirk Douglas is very good at that particular kind of role, yeah. um, which is why, and also Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster, I believe, had a number of different movies together, um, upwards of like five or so, I, I believe. So they, they have a lot of good, they, the chemistry is very good between them. And uh, just to note, in the book, General Scott actually fought in this Iran war. Mm-hmm. So he has some experience, which might also explain his antipathy toward uh, Jordan Lyman and, and, and this particular treaty. Um, so back at the, back at the Pentagon, uh, Jiggs runs into General Scott 
and uh, General Scott's very tired. He's I understand the feeling he says about having to go to all these different meetings in D.C. and having to eat the same piece of chicken uh, <laughs> over and over again. Uh, always, always chicken with vegetable medley is always what I've been seeing in these things. <laughs> so, but he said he he wants to know. Jiggs uh, is asked by General Scott, like, what did you think of the speech? I, I love the response. He says, uh, impressive, which can kind of mean anything. Right. But they have a debate. It's a really good scene. They debate, like, the meaning of democracy. This country's in trouble, Jiggs. Deep trouble. Now, there are two ways we can handle this. We can sit here in our duffs and ask for divine guidance and hope for it. Or we can... Or we can watch Jiggs. What would your advice be? Well, sir, we're a nation of laws, rules. We're military men, so we've taken an oath to uphold the Constitution. The democratic way. Yes, sir, the democratic way. Do your duty and, as you put it, ask for divine guidance. You're right, Jiggs. You're absolutely right. You know, Jiggs, you've been working too hard in this damned alert. Why don't you take the rest of the week off? Duck down to White Sulphur Springs and blow yourself to a good time clear that Scott sees himself as the primary opponent to the president, and he believes he's got this massive ego. He believes that he's the one who can, he knows what the problem is, and he alone can fix it. Mm -hmm. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And once there's a little bit of hint of pushback from Jiggs, he doesn't, he wants Jiggs to join his team. Right. You know, because Jiggs is very capable. He would love it if, if he was on his side. But then once Jiggs is like, you know, art's not our job. Our job is to follow orders, not to, you know, to create policy. That's when Scott goes, I'm going to give you a three day pass. You need to no longer be concerned yourself with the drill. Yeah. You're working too hard. You need some time off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he gives him a, a an, un, an unasked for three-day pass, uh, which, unfortunately for General Scott, basically gives Jiggs the time he needs to, uh, you know, work directly with the president. If he was kept, uh, you know, in the office doing menial tasks, but not related to the drill, he may have, you know, not had right. the free time. Right. Right. And it's interesting you said, you know, because Scott clearly wants Jiggs on his side. He wants, he, he believes in his cause. And he wants Jiggs to join him. But if that's the case, why was Jiggs not informed about the secret base? Why was he not informed about the other things that he's now questioning? You know, well, obviously, if he'd been informed, there would be no book and no movie. But, yeah. uh, you know, if he truly felt that way, why was he cut out of the process? So obviously, Scott didn't. He kept a very tight circle on this. And his main aide, his key aide, he's left out of the process. So he must have had some reason for that which doesn't really get explained. But clearly, if it was that he didn't feel he could totally trust Colonel Casey Jiggs, you know, that he was right. And, uh, you know, again, this is the general, the general way that General Scott solves problems is he encourages uh, different people to go hang out in bunkers for a while. So he tells the president to go to Mount Weather or Mount Thunder. And he also tells Jiggs to go hang out in Sulphur, White Sulphur Springs, which you mentioned earlier. Um, is this where, is funny, yeah, yeah, because nobody nobody could have known at the time. I mean, it was again kind of an open secret locally, but the the no the 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 reality that there was this massive bunker underneath the Greenbrier Resort in White mm -hmm. Sulphur Springs, West Virginia, didn't wasn't known until uh, I think like 1992 when the Washington Post magazine broke the story. So the fact that Scott tells Jigs to go down to White Sulphur Springs and have yourself a good time. In the book, Jesus is married. So Scott says, take your wife there, go <laughs> get away, have a good time. 
in this case, he's like, just go there and do whatever. Yeah. The fact that there's this massive, you know, relocation bunker there that's part of this whole apparatus for surviving a nuclear war, I just found kind of funny and, and, yeah. and ironic that they would reference that. He's not saying, like, go hang out in Key West. He's, he's saying, like, go to a place where you would still be reminded of war. Right. Well, okay, but again, nobody would have, they wouldn't right, have known yeah. at the time, the authors of the book and, you know, clearly so forth. So it's, uh, it's just, it's an interesting, it's funny. that's what they would do that. Yeah. Ha have you been to Greenbrier as a You know, a it's on my list of places to go atomic touring. I have, I have not. Um, but I, I understand the tour is, is quite interesting. And um, it used to be, you had to be a guest in order to do it. But now anybody apparently can show up. So uh, at some point, I will get there. Yes, I'm a I'm assembling a team of people to go over there, so we'll I'll let you know when the date is. We're trying to do that too, because awesome. it is a like a about a two or three hour drive for us uh, to get over there, and it, well, that was what was keeping me was it's a three hundred and eighty dollar night place to stay, <laughs> but I, I I can go hang out somewhere else nearby. It's um, probably a motel six down the road. Yeah, yeah it's perfect. <laughs> All right, so we also see in the movie right before Senator Ray Clark leaves to go. Uh, over to see where this base is, uh, he recommends that Jiggs goes talks to Ellie Holbrook because the fact that they used to have a relationship with together with between Scott and, and Holbrook, uh, he maybe thinks like, all right, maybe she'll have some gossip or leverage, something else we can use in the event that the rest of this doesn't go as according to plan. Right. He's looking for something salacious. There's even a, a kind of an unseemly gleam in his eye that he's hoping to get something because apparently it was something of an open secret that Scott and Holbrook had something of a fling. Scott is married. So, you know, the fact that you could, I mean, you know, today, apparently, you know, you don't get in trouble if you have extramarital affairs. But back in the 1960s, <laughs> big deal. it was a big deal. Um, so, yeah, setting aside that, you know, whatever military impropriety Scott might be engaged in, you know, Clark seems to think that if they can get him, you know, having illicit sex, that that will be enough to basically blackmail Scott uh, or, or to, you know, force him out uh, mm -hmm. some other way. So, yeah, which also makes Jake's uncomfortable a little bit. He's not happy about that. The president tells General Scott, uh, in a in a scene where we see these like video conference systems, which I think is interesting because it's never clear where the camera is coming from. <laughs> right. It's uh, supposed to be in the console, but the angle is all wrong. Right. Yeah. So the, the director said that he was literally just they were that was live. They were they were talking to each other. But through cameras, like an you know the film camera was doing a live feed. Right. They did. They went back and forth. I just love how it it has that video camera, but they still have the corded like megaphone that they're holding up to their mouth, um, right. like they're like it's a tape recorder or something. But the president is tells General Scott that oh you know what I'm actually because of my health I'm not going to do the the red drill the red alert drill anymore on on Sunday I'm going to be instead of trying to run through the preparations for a nuclear attack, I'm going to go fishing at Blue Lake. In Maine. So General Scott's not happy about this. You'll forgive me, sir, but I must say I don't like it. As Commander-in-Chief, orders can only be given by you. And Mr. President, I don't think the Russians are going to be very much impressed by an alert that takes place while you go fishing. It's another trick. The President basically says, look, I'm going to go fishing, but then he never leaves the White House. Instead... Murdoch, who is the right hand man of another right hand man of General Scott, and another guy get on a boat and are essentially like staking out the place that the president was meant to be. And the president is convinced, oh, if I would have actually gone there, I would have been kidnapped. Right. And you see, there's actually a scene where there's a shot of this 
lake house and the lake and a speedboat or a motorboat. And and then you see pull back and it, you can hear a camera, a movie camera, and it's mm-hmm. being filmed. And the Secret Service is actually filming this. And then they zoom in on the faces and you can see it's the, you know, uh, one of Scott's aides and then also General or Colonel Broderick, who's in charge of the Secomcon site out again near yeah. El Paso somewhere. So something fishy, pun intended, <laughs> is is going on. It's so funny that they, that those would be the ones that would be, you know, hands on in terms of kidnapping. And I don't really know what the plan would be to kidnap the president from the Secret Service. Two guys on a boat. Maybe there was some other stuff happening there, but clearly something that maybe have been what they were going to do on. They were preparing for Sunday. Right. Well, and in fact, and in fact, the head of the White House Secret Service detail, uh, whose name is Art Corwin, just speaking of the fact that why are these two particular people that are so close to General Scott staking out the president's vacation home? The Secret Service's guy, guy says, hey, this is actually a good thing. If General Scott is sending his two most important people there, it means that he's like us. He's a very small group. Yeah. He doesn't have a lot of people that he can rely on for something like this, which means that he's spread pretty thin. So that might actually help us if, if this truly is some sort of plot against you, sir, Mr. President. You know, we may have the upper hand here because it's clear that he doesn't have a whole army that he can rely on. Right. It is really almost like a half dozen versus a half dozen people uh, in the course of this, it seems like. Or maybe a dozen if he doesn't. So Senator Clark, I love these scenes. Senator Clark is trying to find where Site Y is because he doesn't know, but he's... He's trying to call uh, Henderson's house, who's the friend of Jiggs. Who works at the base, right. He gets his wife, and I don't know where the guy is. He's out there somewhere. It's secret. He never comes home. Uh, and they can't find out what it is, but then we have this kind of really interesting scene where uh, it's clearly, like, hot outside, and he's at a bar, and he's trying to figure out what's going on. And uh, a woman runs into him there who is, uh, you know, dancing with the jukebox, and she, you know, talks with him about stuff. And they have this scene about, oh, well, we thought we were going to make a lot of money because we opened up this uh, diner, essentially, because of all of the army base nearby. And then they, ah, where is this base? And they kind of have this conversation. uh, And that's where he finds out where he wanted to go to. And I I just wanted to note here, this always reminds me when I see here scenes like this uh, of Owl's Bar, Um, Owl like the bird. Uh, It's a roadhouse lunch spot that fed scientists that were working on the Manhattan Project. And it was a very similar thing. There was originally just a small little, like, a, I believe it was a hotel that then once these people started to all of a sudden start appearing near San Antonio, New Mexico, near Alamogordo. And like, oh, well, these people need fed. So they started, they opened up a little shop to make some some, some food, uh, mostly known for their beer and their green chili cheeseburgers. Uh, and this place is still open today. You can go and check it out. Uh, but the, my favorite little story related to this is that... Um, on the night of July 15th, a few of the military police were at the bar and they told the dad who was who was running this place. And he said, look, if you really want to see something great, you know, in appreciation of all the great beer and burgers you've given us, you know, the next morning, look towards the horizon at about 530. And that was, you know, he did so. He didn't tell his family or anything. And he was therefore one of the few non-military uh, and not people and civilians not involved in the Manhattan Project who actually witnessed the nuclear first nuclear test, the Trinity test, by his own eyes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is one of my places on atomic tourism that I'm going to try to get to uh, at some point in the next year or so, and try that burger and see how that is. You're making me hungry. <laughs> 
Right. By the way, the the woman at the the woman at the the diner is like, we opened this place up because the base opened up and we were gonna have all these soldiers. And she looks around, the place is completely yeah, empty. Yeah. It's like, where is this base? Nobody ever leaves the base. Don't these don't these boys have to drink? Don't they want to <laughs> have a good time? You know? Yeah. And uh, so clearly, people locally know about it, just like people locally knew about Mount Weather and other places. Um, and yet, there's no evidence that that it actually exists. So you're right. So he gets in his car and he keeps. He keeps driving. She does. This woman does give him a clue, though. She says, all we know about it is that there's this new road that branches off the, the main road mm -hmm. out of town and it goes nowhere. You know, we hear the planes coming in, but we don't see them. Apparently they're landing. So that's, you know, Clark gets in his car is a Chevy Nova, actually, and, <laughs> and drives away in the dust to try to find this, this secret base. And he almost gets there. But then all of a sudden, like a helicopter lands and a guy gets out with a gun and uh uh, trying to figure out what's happening. So hopefully, hopefully he's okay. We see another scene very quickly on on aircraft carrier. I'm not. Did they say where it was? It was forward deployed. It was. It's supposed to be a Gibraltar. Uh, the Admiral Barneswell is the head of the Sixth Fleet. Again, he's the only person who was part of the General Scott's Preakness stakes bet, the thing that sets mm -hmm. off the whole plot. Who who sends in a note saying, "And I'm I'm not going to bet," which piques Jake's curiosity. So, you know, the president sends his trusted aide, Paul Gerard, out there to find out what's going on and to hopefully get some sort of statement from him as to what's what's happening that will prove that this plot is real and therefore will allow them to smash it and expose General Scott. Does he get it? Well, <laughs> uh, he goes to the aircraft carrier, which is in reality, they filmed this in San Diego. And I believe they filmed it on the the Kitty Hawk, or the I think it was the Kitty Hawk. Mm -hmm. In the book, they named the carrier the Dwight D. Eisenhower, which was actually quite um, interesting because there was an Eisenhower carrier. Mm -hmm. Carrier just it didn't exist at that point in time. So uh, Gerard shows up somewhat unannounced, but with a a letter from the president. They don't actually. He's carrying a letter from the president, telling Barneswell he's supposed to comply with everything that Gerard asks him to do, that's never really, uh, it's implicit in the, right. in the film, but it's explicit in the book. Gerard, you know, says, are you a, uh, kind of, he's kind of cagey. It's like, so Admiral, are you a, are you a betting man? <laughs> and Admiral Barnesville's like, well, it, it depends on the game. You know, it's like, well, do you like horses? Well, you know, it depends on the horse. <laughs> the day, the weather. <laughs> the day, track and so forth. It's, what about the Preakness? You have anything going on in the Preakness? It's like, you know, clearly... At that point, the admiral knows something's up, and Gerard confronts him and says, "Look, I think I think you know all about this." He's 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 fishing here. He doesn't know for yeah. sure, but he says, "I want you to write up everything about this this plot, and I expect you to do it now." And you know, the admiral's still like, "Well, I, I wish I had more time." And he says, "Yeah, but you don't. <laughs> you you need to do this." Yeah. Um, and so it's clear, you know, Gerard's got him. The admiral apparently is boxed in. But then we cut to the next scene, which has, you know, again, the plot, all the plot wheels are in motion here. Right. And uh, you've got Jiggs meeting up with uh, Ellie Holbrook, General Scott's apparently old recent flame. Yeah. To uh, uh, to try to get information out of her. Yeah. And the one one other thing I'd add about Gerard is uh, I don't know the exact sequencing of this, but he calls after getting the the uh, the note, the confession. He calls the White House and tells the president, like, I got it. 
After uh, you're right. After right. he leaves the ship. And I'm, and I'm coming I'm coming home now. He's going to get on an airplane and come home. And he takes the signed confession and puts it into a cigar case. Uh, cigarette. Cigarette. Yeah. Cigarette case. And it's the cigarette case is uh, a gift from the president. You can see his name and it's in... It's monogrammed, um, right? That. Yeah, yeah. So he puts that in his in his pocket. Thank God for people smoking cigarettes. Right. Thank goodness. <laughs> yeah, it saves lives. Uh, as we'll find out. Um, but yeah, so you, as you mentioned, you know, Jigs. I don't. This scene is a very uncomfortable scene, so I don't really want to get into it too much. But he does try to. Jigs comes in to talk to to Ellie, and uh, she thinks he's she's he's there to meet her socially. Um, they they kind of first talk about their past, and and she t- he gets her to open up about her relationship with General Scott, about how he hurt her. Uh, and then she talks all the way through this, and she mentions that she has these love notes, basically, love letters between the two of them, and she was going to keep them to use uh, as blackmail or to, or mostly just to ruin him. But then she decides not to, so she throws them into the trash. Uh, of course, this is what he was there for, so Jiggs goes into the trash, digging and gets caught. Unfortunately, yeah, he's not very uh, he's not very clever there. Yeah, he sort of goes on the pretext that he's um, he's trying to start up something with her, and it's clear that yeah. Ellie has some feelings for him, which apparently have never been uh, reciprocated, at least not explicitly. Um, but Jiggs has this pretense of you know I need to know where you stand with Scott before we get involved, and that's where she says you know I'm I'm fed up with him. She yep. dumps his picture in the trash can. She says, it's over. I have these letters. She throws those in the trash can. She says, I'll, I'll cook you a nice steak. We'll have a good time. Yeah, and Jake's goes to get the letters out of the trash can. And she's like, oh, how do you want your... St- Wait, why are you getting these letters out of yeah, the trash yeah. can? Oh, you're just... you. That's all you came here for. You're not interested in me. You know, the hell with you. Jake clearly feels very, um, you know, uncomfortable at that point. Uh, picks up the letters and leaves <laughs> after getting a, a slap after getting slapped yes yes and justifiably so and this is, a, this is a fun little joke here is that she says this line which is in the movie it's meant to be a very dramatic line i make you two promises a very good steak medium rare and the truth which is very rare i was listening to the director commentary and the director's like i wrote that line i hate that line <laughs> he's like every time he listens he's like this movie is a perfect movie except for that line and i hate that line uh, so it's very funny to see people see in their work previously um yeah it does not he doesn't like that too much uh but apparently this plot i don't know too much of the details of this but the internet tells me that this was based on a real life story involving a mistress of general douglas MacArthur, and we didn't really get into this yet so uh, General Scott is definitely an amalgamation of a couple different figures. I, w- I think I actually do have some notes on this later, but it is, uh, you know, including uh, General Douglas MacArthur for, uh, and as well as Curtis LeMay a little bit and a little mix of uh, General Walker, mm-hmm. uh, who was somebody who had some conflicts with, uh, with with Kennedy. So there are a number of different folks that we'll get. I think we'll get into this a little bit later, but he is this, this, this subplot with uh, with Ellie. Uh, it seems to be based on a, rich, a real life story. So Jiggs brings these love letters to the president's team, and they love it. They they love the they, they they're joking about how salacious these love letters are. The way they're looking at them, by the way, it's they're they're, it's 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 pretty disgusting actually. <laughs> I mean, yeah. and it's sort of it's weird because Scott is this. There's no sense in the character as played by Burt Lancaster that he would ever write yeah gushy love letters. 
But who knows? He keeps a lot of secrets, obviously. Yeah, but they're like pouring over this, like, you know, like like re like reading the Star Report about Bill Clinton or something. Oh, right. they said what? You know. <laughs> And uh, the president doesn't want to use it either. It's going to be like a last, a literally a letter of last resort uh, in this situation here. Uh, but before we can even decide what to do about it, we get some breaking news here that uh, Paul Gerard is dead. Uh, his plane crashed uh, somewhere over the mountains of Madrid. So this is an interesting, I don't know how much we would get into it, but I thought the scene was telling me that the president was suspicious that there may have been some sort of, the plane was either shot down or something was happening. But you know, the more, you called me out on this in the notes, and the more I think about it was how could they possibly even know that Gerard was there as part of this part of this thing? I thought maybe that maybe Barnesworth did something to so that he could not be called out in the course of this. But uh, I don't know. I, you, you think it was pretty clear that it wasn't that case. Well, you know, I, the first time there's no hint of anything nefarious in the no. book. I think I think probably because we tend to see conspiracies everywhere these days that we're kind of looking at it through that lens. But the real kind of conspiracy stuff didn't hit the United States until the 1970s and Watergate and you know, all the films associated with that, Three Days of the Condor, The Parallax View, mm -hmm. all that. So, um, no, I think the thing, I mean, the previous the previous scene, you've got the president, he's elated, he's talked to Paul Gerard on the phone. Gerard says, I got everything. I got it in writing. The plot is real. It's happening. Here's all the people who are involved. The base is real. They didn't have any proof at that point. It was all conjecture based on a little, you know, a few scraps of wisps of information. So the president's elated. He's extremely, he's high, you know, and then they get these yeah. love letters. It's like, okay, now we really got him. One way or the other, we got him. And then boom, he gets this call. Gerard is dead, you know, and then, oh my God, that's the only proof we really had. You know, now what are we going to do? So it doesn't really, there's no indication that anything really happened. It apparently it was just some sort of horrible accident. And it's just pure coincidence that D Gerard was on the plane. I mean, in the book, he sort of sneaks into Europe flying on the vice president's plane. This is a little, another tiny subplot. Uh, the uh, vice president, this, this, this whole coup is supposed to happen. Congress is in recess. The president is going to be secreted alone at Mount Thunder the vice president has been sent on a goodwill tour to Italy to visit his ancestral homeland, <laughs> something that has been strongly recommended to him by Senator Prentice from California, who, again, is one of the plotters with General Scott. When the vice president goes to Europe for his trip, Gerard hops on his official plane with him and then takes a charter to Gibraltar to meet with Admiral Barneswell to, to get his information. And then the flies commercial on TWA, apparently back to back to the United States. So nobody knew he was there until Barneswell was there. And Barneswell wasn't part of the plot at this point. He'd opted out of it. So it's possible Barneswell could have done something. There is a later scene we'll get to where, you know, Barneswell appears and says some things that complicate matters. But I think it was just an accident. I, and I think it works better now I, that we've gone through this. It works better as an accident because in the history of, of uh, near misses with n nuclear weapons, accidental nuclear conflicts, you know, oftentimes it's because we're lucky that one person made a decision that, oh, that looks like um, it could be not an incoming missile strike, but something else on the radar. So they'll make, they'll break protocol and, and, and move through it in a different way. Or 
uh, when during the Cuban Missile Crisis, there were a number of examples of places on, on the submarine where the Soviet uh, commanders should have followed protocol and launched their weapons when they thought that they were under attack. You know, like these, right. a lot of these near misses. And in this situation, it's almost a lot like Doctor Strange Love, where they they finally think they solved the problem. They got they got the the recall. Uh, they 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 thought everything solved, but no, there's just one more thing because of the chaotic nature of everything. Something will happen that will stop it. So I think right. it, I think it actually does work pretty well as an accident, and better as an accident, to be honest. Yeah, and it becomes it becomes another obstacle that they have to overcome in order to you know. And of course, keep in mind that you know today, none of this would transpire this way. Gerard would have gone in with a an iPhone, and if he didn't record Barneswell surreptitiously or otherwise, he could have taken pictures of this note and immediately transmitted it to the president or whomever. Yep. You know, in case closed. But obviously, in nineteen you know, in the film framework, 1974, that's not an option. It has to be, it has to be put in writing and physically carried across the ocean to the White House. So. Yeah, they didn't invent that in yeah the ten years from the in the future, uh, just yet. Uh, and then we 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 do go back to Senator Clark. He's at EcomCon. He's uh, uh, what I like to joke here is that he's being held under lock and whiskey because. He is they're trying to get him someone mysteriously is trying to keep him drunk so that he's not cognizant of what's happening here. But he refuses to drink anymore. Uh, It shows a little bit of character development for him. Henderson meets him there. He thinks he's a miss like a rabble rouser doesn't know exactly who he is. But ultimately, we find out Henderson finds out that he's actually there on uh, Jiggs's recommendation. And then it works out pretty well. And uh, there's this great line. Senator Clark says that. All you've got to know is this. Right now, the government of the United States is sitting on top of the Washington Monument, right on the very point, tipping right and left and ready to fall off and break up on the pavement. There are just a handful of men who can prevent that. And you're one of them. Uh, it, it works. Henderson breaks him out. But, you know, he basically breaks him out of this this holding cell, gets Henderson in trouble. We never really find out what happens to Henderson, but he gets pulled away at a very scary scene at an airport. Yeah, and we do find out what... Well, we do find out what actually happens to Anderson. It's 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 glossed over a little bit. It, it becomes more of a major issue in the book. But yeah, so I mean, it's good that you know Henderson is Jiggs's friend, right? They both fought together in Iran, so he implicitly trusts Jiggs. So when Clark says, "If Jiggs told you something, would you believe it?" and Henderson says, "Yes," and Henderson's already said, "I, Senator Clark, I don't understand why you're being locked up here, but the orders are explicit." Right. So he's already questioning this. It just doesn't make any sense to him, and he's already told Jiggs. I don't even understand what we're training for. So he's a good soldier. He's following orders, but he's skeptical. Clark lays the whole thing out for him, and Henderson's like, "Holy cow! You know, we gotta, we gotta get you out of here." So he, you know, he, he assaults another officer. They scram out on these little uh, track. I don't know. There's a, probably a proper name for these vehicles. It's a very they, silly. It looks very silly. It looks like a moon buggy. Yeah, it looks like a little moon rover. Exactly. You know, they they kind of get out of there. They escape. They fly back to. Washington to Dulles and Clark, as soon as they got off the plane, again, there's no cell phones, right? So Clark says, I have to call the White House. Yeah. And Henderson's standing there. Clark makes his call, turns around. Henderson's vanished. Mm-hmm. In the book, actually, Clark takes Henderson back to his house in Georgetown, goes to the White House, and then some of Scott's military goons kidnap Henderson out of his house. They take him to Fort Myer in both cases in the book and the movie mm-hmm. and put him in the stockade. And he's incommunicado, so he can't tell anybody what he knows. So again, that was another, just like 
the letter Gerard got from Edward Barneswell. This is another set of proof. Here's a guy who's actually at the base. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now they've gotten him out of the picture. So like all the pieces that they need are being grabbed from them at the most inopportune moments. Uh, exactly. So uh, once we find out that the plane had crashed uh, for, with Gerard on it, Admiral Barnesworth now says that he never really, he didn't sign anything. Gerard came by, he asked him a couple questions and left. It was very weird. Yeah, he flat out lies. He lies to the president. I we didn't. Yeah, I didn't sign anything. There was nothing. And Barneswell is like, I don't know what you're talking about. So he's, you know, what, did he talk to Scott in the interim? Is he just trying to cover his ass? Yeah. No, who knows? I mean, he's he was he was savvy enough not to go along with the plot, but he's not willing to implicate himself if there's actually right. no proof. When yeah, he wants to not be a, a target in the the new administration of General Scott. Uh, should that happen so let's we've been going long here about the plot but let's get really quickly now we're at our, our final moments here we're in saturday this is when you know it's it's gonna get it's gonna get kind of rough this is where this stuff's supposed to happen uh the president doesn't know what to do he can't fire general scott and his in his team his his cabal of collaborators uh without any sort of evidence um but if he doesn't do it then the coup is going to move forward uh, and he'll be, you know, taken out of office, and, and democracy will fail. What is the mood like in the book when this, when when Saturday, but I guess in Sunday in, in the book, the president is really down. One of his best friends has been killed in this accident. The evidence that he needs is missing. Another witness is gone. There's a backstory in the book that Senator Clark, the alcoholic who went out to the base, who was captured and then got liberated by Colonel Henderson, mm -hmm. their buddies, they fought together in the Korean War. And at a key point during some battle, Lyman kind of phased out and just totally lost it. Clark slaps him too and says, "Look, you gotta, you gotta lead your men." And so yep. ever since then, they've been a real, a real tight pair. But Clark is at this point nowhere to be found, and Lyman is just sort of—he's vacillating. He doesn't know what to do. And in the book, there's this great line that the Secretary of the Treasury, Secretary Todd, delivers where he's trying to get the president to make up his mind. Mm -hmm. says, Let's just make sure we act before it's too late. It takes only one administration to throw the country away, which mm. particularly today, right now, right. really resonates. So, And there's a lot of these resonances throughout the book and throughout the film as well, which we can get into uh, in a few yeah. minutes. He's really not sure you know, what to do. He, he, he's got the letters, but he doesn't want to use them. Yeah. Right, right, exactly, exactly. And, he, and he's very clear that... The, the enemy is not what he calls the lunatic fringe. There's this great quote. Tell General Scott I want to see him right away. Yes, sir. I think it's time we face the enemy, Mr. President. He's not the enemy. Scott, the Joint Chiefs, even the very emotional, very illogical lunatic fringe, they're not the enemy. The enemy is an age, a nuclear age. It happens to have killed man's faith in his ability to influence what happens to him. And out of this comes a sickness, I know, a sickness of frustration, a feeling of impotence, helplessness, weakness. And from this, this desperation, we look for a champion in red, white, and blue. Every now and then a man on a white horse rides by and we appoint him to be our personal god for the duration. For some men it was a Senator McCarthy. For others it was a General Walker. Now it's a General Scott. Which is interesting, again, that, you know, that it's nuclear weapons and the threat, the omnipresent threat of nuclear war 
and the fear of that that is really driving people's concerns and driving them against the treaty and towards Scott and against the president. And I think that's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's been throughout the yep. year. Really not sure what to do. He decides to basically confront Scott in the White House, have it out with him, and hopefully everything will work out. Yeah, and that's what we get this great climatic scene, because so far at this point, I believe the president and General Scott have only talked to each other through the futuristic the video. It's the first time we, we get them in a room together. And, you know, Burt Lancaster is great. Uh, one of the best actors of his of his time. And Frederick Mark is also very good, uh, and they work really well together. Uh, John Frank Frankenheimer, the director of this movie, said it was the best scene he's ever directed in terms of the interaction, and, it, and it's really good. So the president runs through this stuff. The he, he calls in General Scott, and General Scott's like, all right, here's the drill. Here's how everything's going to work out. The president has this great line of, uh, very, it's a small line, but it's a line I love where he says, you know, don't bother with that now. Yeah. Um, there won't be a drill. Yeah, there's not going to be a drill. Yeah. So he lays out the charges. At a certain point, General Scott realizes, okay, you 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 have something, but what do you really have? And he starts to break down. He starts to say things like, "You, every single thing that you have on me, there is a reasonable counter-argument to that because I planned for this. Everything you, you, you're telling me, I can come up with something else. So it's you're going to be your word versus mine, and you are an unpopular president. And I am the most popular military leader around. Or perhaps more aptly classified your personal and private code. It covers your plan for the military overthrow of the United States government. I presume, Mr. President, you're prepared to back up that charge? I am prepared to brand you for what you are, General. A strutting egoist with a Napoleonic power complex. And an out-and-out -out traitor. I know you think I'm a weak sister, General. But when it comes to my oath of office, defending the Constitution of the somebody United States... Somebody has to States, teach me how to salute a flag. Somebody has to teach you about the democratic processes that that flag represents. But don't you presume to take on that job, Mr. President? Because, frankly, you're not qualified. Your course of action in the past year has bordered on criminal negligence. This treaty with the Russians is a violation of any concept of security. You're not a weak sister, Mr. President. You're a criminally weak sister. He accuses the president of playing on the people's fear of the atomic bomb and lying to them that a pen would fix that fear. And if you want to talk about your oath of office, I'm here to tell you face to face, President Lyman, that you violated that oath when you stripped this country of its muscles, when you deliberately played upon the fear and fatigue of the people and told them they could remove that fear by the stroke of a pen. And then when this nation rejected you, lost its faith in you and began militantly to oppose you, you violated that oath by simply not resigning from office and turning this country over to someone who could represent the people of the United States. And that would be General James Mattoon Scott, wouldn't it? Which I think is great because that is honestly a debate that people can have about, you know, the dangers of nuclear weapons. You know, either you could say, look, the bomb is really scary and you're worried about it. And here's a solution that I'm going to say is going to work. And then to people who believe that there are nuclear dangers, but the only way to keep that danger from happening is to keep the bomb and, and, and make it as safe as possible, but make sure that your deterrent is working. Like that is a real debate. And I think that is very well represented here. He's not Curtis LeMay running in there and saying, we need to use our bombs actively all the time. This is what we're doing. He's making at least a reasonable position on that front. I think, I think that's uh, something that a lot of other movies would not necessarily have the courage to do so. Right. Now, you have two very great actors and two very powerful characters, both of whom have a lot of chits that they're carrying uh, yep. to make their case, and they parry each other. 
And in the background, of course, the president has these love letters that he can use to expose General Scott's infidelity and theoretically anyway, force him to back down. He doesn't want right. to do that because he's too much of a gentleman and he thinks his, the general's private business is his private business. But it's there, it's in his desk drawer and he's willing to use it if he if he absolutely has to, which he doesn't want. And on the other hand, Scott, you know, just despises president and despises, I mean, the fundamental problem here is that he despises the system of government that we, that we have. He's not willing to work in proper yeah. channels. Lyman says, you should run for president if you feel so strongly about that. Right. You know, don't, don't do an end run around me. James Mattoon Scott, as you put it, hasn't the slightest interest in his own glorification, but he does have an abiding concern about the survival of this country. Then by God, run for office. You have such a fervent, passionate, evangelical affection for your country. Why in the name of God don't you have any faith in the system of government you're so hell-bent to protect? You say I've duped the people, General. I've built them. I've misled them. I've stripped them naked and made them defenseless. You accuse me of having lost their faith and deliberately and criminally shut my ears to the national voice. I do. Well, where the hell have you heard that voice, General? In freight elevators? In dark alleys? In secret places in the dead of night? How did that voice seep into a locked room full of conspirators? That's not where you hear the voice of the people, General. Not in this republic. You want to defend the United States of America. Then defend it with the tools it supplies you with. Its constitution. You ask for a mandate, General, from a ballot box. You don't steal it after midnight, when the country has its back turned. He's trying to almost telling Scott, look, if you run for office, you would probably beat me. You would win. You have the peep, the support of the public, or at least a f the fervor is currently on your side. You just need to do this. And then Scott responds, you know, his his idea is, yeah, I could probably beat you if I waited a year or two years before the next election. But he does not believe that there will be a country left, that he doesn't want to win an election of a country that's going to be reduced to rubble by the Soviet Union's attack on the United States. Like he has this other great line where he says... A year and nine months from now, I don't think there'll be an electorate, let alone an election. I think we'll be sitting in our own rubble, a minimum of 100 million dead. And on the gravestone, we can carve. They died for Jordan Lyman's concept of peace. Right. Concept of peace, you commie lover, you know. So, yeah. And it's, I mean, Scott refuses to fall back to, um, and uh, he, he ends up, you know, leaving the Oval Office. Lyman has his hands on these letters. He's almost, almost, almost going to use them, and he decides not to. And he says, look, I'm going to ask for your resignation. I'm going to ask for the resignation of all the other conspirators on the Joint Chiefs of Staff and the others. I'm holding a press conference. You know, you're done. And Scott's like, go for it. Go for it. You know, I don't think... I don't think that's going to happen. He says that he's going to say the reason is disagreement over the treaty, not because you are trying to do a military coup, because that would tear the country apart. Yeah. He's willing to say that, look, I'm not even going to tell the people about this. I'm just going to hold this press conference about our disagreements, and then we can't work together. So, yeah, so Scott goes back to the uh, uh, the Pentagon. He's planning on making this uh, this broadcast. They're going to they're going to cut into the uh, president's speech and Scott's going to say that he's basically, you know, he's taking over the government right. and uh, that this is their plan, you know, all along. Instead, I, this is actually my favorite part of the film, although that scene is is certainly tremendous. That The president holds this, this press conference and it looks like an impromptu thing. It's more scripted out in the book uh, where he reveals that... Um, you know, there's rumors going around that, that, you know, some of the Joint Chiefs are going to get sacked. 
General Scott might be in political trouble, Mr. President. Can you comment on that? And just as he's about to start talking, one of his aides comes over and whispers in his ear at the podium and says, excuse me. And they go back and you see that there's this, and you've seen him earlier in the film, this diplomatic attache from Spain has shown up. Mm -hmm. They found Paul Gerard's cigarette case, the cigarette case in which he had put the memo from Admiral Barnswell explaining all the particulars of the coup and admitting everything. They're looking over this like, oh my God, this is everything that we needed. Right. But they already knew about it because Gerard had called. So he says, look, the president says to his agent, postpone the press conference for 30 minutes. We need to get this out. They then send copies, photostats, to the, <laughs> all the joint chiefs saying, you know, look, we got you. We want your resignation. And then he goes back on the podium and gives this press conference. And he receives the letters of resignation as he's giving the press conference. Yep. And you see General Scott walking out of the Pentagon, preparing to go give this thing. And he's looking at a TV monitor and the president's announcing that these people have all resigned. And suddenly, for the first time in the whole film, mm -hmm. he lets his guard down and you see he's defeated. He's, he's totally deflated. Everybody has abandoned him. He has nobody that he can work with anymore. And he goes out to his car and his aide's sitting there listening to the press conference on the radio, and he gets in dejectedly without saying anything. And the aide says, uh, turns off the radio, says, I'm sorry, sir. Yeah. I think he says, where to? And the Scott says, home. And then right right before that as well, uh, Kirk Douglas and Burt Lancaster, so Jiggs and, uh, and General Scott have a little conf confrontation. And I mean, it's, it's a good line. I don't think it's as strong as uh, it could be. Uh, General Scott asks him, have you ever heard of Judas? because he's accusing uh, Jiggs of, of turning on him. Right. That's a signed statement from Admiral Barnswell. You're a nightcrawler, Colonel, a peddler. You sell information. Are you sufficiently up on your Bibles to know who Judas was? Yes, I know who Judas was. He was a man I worked for and admired until he disgraced the four stars on his uniform. It's pretty powerful. And then the president, he continues his press conference. He says that the United States people are worried that if they sign this treaty that they'll no longer have the strength to lead in the world. But he says, no, we do. There's been abroad in this land in recent months a whisper that we have somehow lost our greatness, that we do not have the strength to win without war, the struggles for liberty throughout the world. This is slander because our country is strong, strong enough to be a peacemaker. It is proud, proud enough to be patient. The whisperers and the detractors, the violent men are wrong. We remain strong and proud, peaceful and patient. And we will see a day when on this earth, all men will walk out of the long tunnels of tyranny into the bright sunshine of freedom. Ladies and gentlemen, was the president of the United States. Press, everybody gets up, claps, and then the movie kind of just, as movies do in the 60s, just ends. Right. All of, no, no credits, boom, over. Because all the credits were in the beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in, in the book, it's actually a scripted speech from the cabinet room. I'll get into the differences here in a second. But he says, I would close with one final observation. There has been abroad in this land in recent months a whisper that we have somehow lost our greatness, that we do not have the strength to win without war, 
the struggle for liberty throughout the world that we do not have the fortitude to face without either surrender or blind violence, the present challenge of men who would use tools as old as tyranny itself to make the future theirs. I say to you today that this whisper is a vile slander, a slander on America, on its people, on, its, on the institutions which we hold dear, on, and which in turn sustain us. Our country is strong, strong enough to be a peacemaker. It is proud, proud enough to be patient. And then he goes on from there. And again, this really echoes, echoes and resonates with me uh, today with the last presidential campaign and even with what we're dealing with now politically. And I think, you know, that was in the book and Rod Serling might have tweaked it a little bit. But but I know where Serling had certain political views about nuclear weapons. It showed yeah. up repeatedly in Twilight Zone and and war. And and of course, he was he went through World War Two and it scarred him tremendously. So um, this is very much part of part of his ethos, too. Yeah. But that just ends. You're right. It ends, you know. And that the music chimes out and it's sort of, you know, it's, it's very like triumph is, you know, the guy has been defeated and, uh, uh, you know, uh, America and liberty and justice for all. But it's interesting in the book, this plays out very differently. So hmm. so in the film, Scott refuses to give in until everybody abandons him. The president cannot get him to admit what he's doing and to resign. In the book, things play out in the Oval Office almost the same way up to a point. Scott refuses and refuses and refuses. The president refuses to use the the love letters. Actually, they aren't, this is interesting, they aren't actually love letters. In the in the book, the incriminating blackmail information is what would have been Ellie's tax return. Huh. I guess there's a different character in, in the book. The character is Melissa Seigneur for the purposes of this discussion. So Ellie, it's not that she has love letters, is that she's this editor, fashion editor of this women's magazine. And while she's romancing General Scott, she deducts the cost of their affair, all $3,000 <laughs> of it on her tax return, and writes it off as, as research on military fashion. The IRS audits her and says, what do you mean? Yeah. And she can't really explain it properly. They agree to split the difference, but they have they get this tax return. And it's the tax return that the president is prepared to use if he has to, to get Scott to to back down. He doesn't use it. Instead, he, after everything else is lost, he pulls out the memo that he has got from Paul Gerard. He doesn't receive it at the press conference last minute. He gets it from this Spanish, this US diplomat from Spain who flies all the way over without telling anybody and hand delivers it to the president. Mm -hmm. And he reads the entire thing to Scott. And Scott says, well, that doesn't mean anything. It could be a forgery. And the president says, is that Admiral Barnesville's signature? He says, I have no idea. He says, look, this is real. Yeah. And, and finally, Scott realizes that he's, his goose is cooked. And he says, if I resign, will you burn that letter? And the president says, I will, but not for the reason you want me to. I don't think anybody should ever know that this happened mm -hmm. because it would fundamentally weaken the country and destroy and, and weaken us vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union. And they'd have a previous discussion in the Oval Office where President Lyman tries to show Scott, and he does, that their position is basically the same on the treaty about what would happen, what they would do. And there's also this also background subplot where they've received information from the CIA that the Soviet Union is secretly producing new missiles. They're just mm. supposed to be limited by the treaty, although, again, the treaty just limits the bombs themselves, not the missiles. And Scott knows this because he's been briefed on it, too. And the president says, look, you and I would do exactly the same thing in this circumstance. So if you became president and we're sitting here, it's not like you would be doing anything differently. Anyway, Scott finally relents. 
He on the spot signs a resignation letter. Hmm. The president burns Barnswell's letter. They get the resignations of the other people. He promises not to cut their retirement pay. Nobody will ever say anything about this. <laughs> and the movie ends with the president has this speech in the cabinet office, and it's all the different players watching the speech and reacting to it. And what's really interesting is Scott is at home at Fort Myers at his quarters, and he's with his other co-conspirators, and they're taking bets on who's going to be the new chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. <laughs> <laughs> it, turns out, yeah. it turns out to be the Navy guy, the CNO, who who was not part of the plot. So it's like he gets away with it. Yeah. He, does, he doesn't. Um, but they, and then, and then, sorry, and then as Scott leaves the White House, so again, before he goes back, Secretary Todd, the Treasurer, Treasury Secretary, and Sec- Senator Clark confront him, show him Ellie's tax return and says, you will never, ever, ever mm-hmm, yeah. cross this president and you will never run for office or we will make this public and ruin you. And Scott's like, okay, you got me there. You know, yeah. I don't want my wife to know about this. So, so it does play out a little bit differently. Yeah. The- and that's uh, that is an interesting question that why in the, in the movie, as, as it's shown on the screen, why does general Scott, he seems dejected, but if you believe that he truly believes that he needs to do what he's doing, he's going to run for office. He's going to try to do this. Now, the original ending of the movie was what General Scott would be on in, in his sports car, and he's upset, and he's driving in, on, on a road, and he hits a bus and dies. And the scene is meant to be that he die, as he's dying on the radio, he hears Lyman's speech. So that's the last thing that he hears before he dies. And the question is, well, did he do this because he was upset and he just was like not focusing on the road or was it on purpose that it was a suicide? And that's another way to wrap up with the fact that, oh, well, there's not going to be, at least from General Scott, another threat to the treaty and it may come from somewhere else. Uh, no, but, but the the way the book ends, that actually is kind of interesting because it does provide a way that it's not a sh- going to be a bit, it's going to be hard to implement the treaty and everything that's going to happen but it's not going to come from him. And that's a reason why. That's right, interesting. right. Very interesting. Right. And, and, and in the book, yeah, basically, so the, the they have this evidence that the CIA has acquired. And remember, at this point, we barely have any satellite reconnaissance capability. We've got U-2s and SR-71s that yeah. can provide photographs in almost real time. And then we've got Corona satellites that provide what we today would consider really crappy you know, resolution, you know, you could see something that maybe is 30 feet long on the ground, but you can barely make it out. And this is the stuff that like will drop a fi- like literal film down and they'll have to exactly it from space. It injects the film capsule after using up all the film and then specially modified planes catch it. And then the film goes and gets processed. And yeah, if you, if you've seen the movie 13 days, that's, that's yeah. the beginning of that. So, so they, they have this information that the Soviets are cheating and president Lyman in the book, sets up a meeting in Vienna with Chairman Femorov or Femorov of the Soviet Union to confront him about this. And mm. there's a little dialogue in the in a side in the book where Femorov is like, he couldn't possibly know what we're doing. Could he? No, he couldn't, you know. <laughs> so he's gonna confront him about this and they're gonna force his hand and he's either gonna be revealed to be, you know, violating the treaty or there's, you know, there's gonna be no treaty and potentially a war or something. So they think they've got the upper yeah. hand. But again, there's no real good reconnaissance capabilities at that point and um that the the idea is that they'll go and they'll resolve all these problems with the treaty 
and they'll be implementing it and everything will be fine. Interestingly, there is a car crash in the book. It's one that they adapted from the movie. In the book, okay, Scott gets away with it, right? Yeah. But the car crash in the book is that Senator Prentice, who's again one of the key plotters here, the chairman of the yeah. Armed Services Committee, is driving his sports car, or actually in the book, in the film, it's a Rolls Royce, right? So, but in the in the book, he's driving a sports car up to Mount Thunder. He hasn't gotten word that Lyman has resigned mm. because this is all happening, you know, in real time with the president giving this speech and so forth. Sorry, that not Lyman, that Scott has resigned, and he crashes on the road to Mount Thunder into an army truck carrying soldiers up to there to do the alert, <laughs> and he dies. Yeah. So, uh, okay. <laughs> that takes care of that. Yeah. <laughs> oh, crazy. Uh, all right. So that that's good. That's uh, I think we we did a really good discussion of the different nuke points that I wanted to cover while we were covering the story. Um, but I have a few other little pieces here that just get a little bit of bounce back and forth. Sure. I think it's super interesting that in the movie, it's not a discussion about it being a multilateral disarmament treaty. At least by the dialogue, it's a U.S. Soviet Union treaty. Absolutely. Despite the fact that they're, you know, the UK, France also have weapons, that China does not yet have weapons in 64 by the time the movie came out. Uh, so 64 was when they did their first test. So so later that year, China revealed, but I guess they were, they, maybe they had some information about this. And you mentioned in the book how it was meant to be a multilateral treaty. That is interesting because it, do you think that this movie would have benefited from having a role for allies, you know, the French and, and the UK as part of this conversation, would that have complicated things a little bit too much if you would have integrated China into the discussions here? I think China in Russia, you can kind of have similar stories and like, oh, well, China, why would they give up the weapons? They just got them. Or the Russians, you know, they don't, they violate treaties and those kind of things. But the role of allies, I would have found to me a kind of an interesting discussion because if we were to do a multilateral arms control agreement, you have to bring those people into the fold. And as complicated it will be to get the Russians and the Chinese to agree to this agreement, probably be even as difficult to get the French to agree to a multilateral arms control agreement, given the role of the bomb, not only in their security, but in their identity as a an independent country, separate right. from NATO and everything. So I don't know. I, I would have thought that would be kind of interesting, but maybe that's a different movie entirely. Well, I don't know why they simplified it. In the book, it is multilateral. And you get the very clear sense that there was this war scare over Iran. In fact, it's clear in the book that General Scott would have used nuclear weapons in Iran if he'd had the opportunity. It's not clear what role he played in the war. Was he the, you know, was he Norman Schwarzkopf leading the charge in Iraq? Was he, and the, the book takes place in 74, the war takes place in 71. So it's three years before the events in the book right. and in the movie. They don't mention that at all in the film. So you know that Scott has no compunction about using nuclear weapons. He seems a little trigger happy. It's my sense that there was this like global war scare and that the United States, that President Lyman convinced the Soviet Union and the other countries that we need. And in fact, he even says in the movie, we have to get essentially the Kennedy line. Yeah. We have to get rid of these weapons before they get rid of us. You know, that we're, we're teetering on the brink here and there's only so much time we have before these weapons get used. So we're like, it's like we're living on borrowed time here. It's not like we can keep stockpiling these weapons forever. And he's absolutely right. And here we are, you know, decades later, and we're still facing the same problems, even though the number of weapons that we have is 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 far fewer. So it's my sense that, you know, the world kind of got together in a collective, just the same way that we got the, the partial test ban treaty in 1963. We yeah. couldn't quite get to the point of getting rid of nuclear weapons, but we could at least ban exploding them in the atmosphere 
and underwater and in space. So we right. did, we made that effort. So that's sort of the the implication that the war was the precipitating factor for doing the treaty. Again, the treaty is, it's, it's a strange treaty as outlined in the book. It only covers neutron bombs. Yeah, is it meant that there only are neutron bombs left and there aren't atomic or hydrogen bombs that are left? It doesn't say, but it sounds like that's what's happened, that we've moved beyond atomic and hydrogen yeah. to neutron. And neutron bombs were a relatively new concept at that point. But yeah, you know, the weapons that leave you know, property standing, but kill people. Yeah. <laughs> the, the sense was that, you know, th this is all getting out of hand and we need to work together for the common good. But it doesn't cover, oddly, it doesn't cover delivery systems. It explicitly excludes delivery systems. Yeah. And that's where there's kind of a disconnect in the book because the president gets word from his CIA director that they get, they've got evidence that the Soviets are manufacturing these new missiles on which they could put warheads that they would pretend to dismantle, but maybe really wouldn't. And so like, if the treaty doesn't cover delivery systems, who cares? Why is that a problem? In reality, of course, no treaty that we've ever had has ever covered warheads because neither the United right. States or the Soviet Union or Russia or any country wants anybody looking inside those RV casings or bomb casings and finding out how those weapons actually work. So we've never actually regulated that. Weapons have been dismantled but it's never been required by treaty. It's always been focused on the delivery systems, the bombers, the missiles, the submarines, because that's stuff you can verify. Absolutely. You can that's see it in person or via overhead reconnaissance. So it's weird yeah. that the authors would choose to do that. It's a strange disconnect for me. I would love to to, to talk to them. I, I think some of them are not around uh, anymore. Um, and same with, with John um, Frankenheimer. It would be really great to to ask that question because that was my second point here that you already you already talked about here which is uh you know how do you what goes into if you really wanted to do a, a multilateral disarmament treaty what you need to do with verification because there are groups out there now that are trying to figure out like how do you maybe move from a an international atomic energy agency role of being a safeguard player of checking to make sure that you have a peaceful nuclear program what are the various points that we could see that this is being used for things that aren't civilian purposes, that it's going to be enriching your fissile material to the point of not just using for civilian power programs or research reactors, but that 90% enrichment you use for a bomb? How do you make sure that that stuff's not being diverted or anything along those lines? How do you take that and then use that maybe to apply for verification? So there is a, right. a groups out there that are trying to do that, and there are, there are also others uh, who are promoting a, a nuclear weapon ban. Um, I'm thinking of the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons, who take the verification question and say that it is a political decision at this point to try to get people on board with the bomb, and verification will come on board right. throughout this process, and we'll be we'll use what we have available to do so. So there's people who you know make accusations against that that says you need verification first before you move forward. But the fact that the, the movie and the book simply says that we'll just deal first with the warheads and not the delivery systems, which has never been, you're right, it's not the way you go. You negotiate what you can verify. I mean, that's what I wrote my master's dissertation on, was on how the role of verification in an arms control agreement. Can you negotiate on something that you can't verify or you don't feel you need to verify? Sometimes, right. most of the cases, that is true. Sometimes you're willing to dismiss those things if the uh, cost of cheating is relatively low or if there's other, if you think that you could be able to catch it or all those different things. So you're sometimes willing to give that up, but uh, most of the time it's not. Then the fact that they don't 
deal with that is a really interesting choice. No, and I think the book and the film and the film, by the way, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't lay out the particulars of the treaty, but it does. It seems like they're talking about delivery systems, but they never really spell it out. But I think that's right. I mean, the decision about whether to go for a treaty to restrict or eliminate nuclear weapons is ultimately a political decision. If we decided tomorrow that we were willing to make the effort, we would find a way to make it happen. Right. There are ways to make it happen. I mean, unlike in the when the book was written in 62 and the movie was released in 64, we know how to do verification now. We had a very effective on-site and satellite verification regime for the INF Treaty, which the Trump uh, administration is now getting ready to scrap officially in mm -hmm. August. We've got the Iran agreement, which the Trump administration is scrapping or trying to scrap, which has effective verification through the International Atomic Energy Agency. So we know how to do those things. Is it is it always foolproof? Is it easy? No, but it can be done. So if we were to make a decision that that's something we want to try to achieve, rather than saying it's impossible, therefore we shouldn't even try, we would we would we would be able to do it because ultimately nuclear weapons are a political manifestation of the problem that we have not learned or not fully willing to trust each other. Mm -hmm. And so we rely on these weapons of last resort because we haven't figured out a way to deal with each other politically. I mean it's the it's the ultimate problem here. And in the book and in the film, President Lyman, through public support and obviously Senate support, is able to transcend that and say, we need to do something about this now. Otherwise, we're not going to be here, right. you know, five or 10 years hence or something. And I think he's he's right about that. We've been extremely lucky over the years. There have been a tremendous number of, of close calls and there will, will continue to be because nuclear weapons are created by people and people are fallible and people control nuclear weapons. It's not just a matter of the president having the ultimate authority to use them. It's all the things that can happen along the road during normal operations and alerts and whatever, where, where things can go wrong. So I think the film can still really make people think today. And it's, and it's it really stands the test of time. I think it should be a back-to-back -back feature. Um, I have this idea of trying to do in DC a nuclear weapon movie film festival. And if I were to show this movie... I would love that. I think there should be a back-to-back -back thing. I think we should watch Some of All Fears, where the movie ends with uh, the President of the United States and, and Russia getting together after almost coming to the brink of full-scale exchange. You know, one detonation takes place in Baltimore, but that movie ends with them agreeing to do a, a bilateral arms control disarmament treaty. Then you move from that to this movie, and then saying, <laughs> all right, well, now, now that that's going to happen, here's what you have to deal. Here's what the story is a version of that story, trying to implement that today. Well, there's two other pieces I hear want to talk about. One is the villain of this movie is interesting because it's different. It's a pro-nuclear deterrent, you know, military general played by one of the most popular and charismatic, you know, actors of his time. But they still said, you know, this is, a, it's one of those things. It's like the villain in these stories would be someone who is not like, you don't look at that person and say, that's a villain. It's a very charismatic person. And people like, the director said that the character is a mashup of uh, General Curtis bombs away LeMay uh, from Strategic Air Command uh, and General Douglas MacArthur, who was a hero of World War II, you know, officially accepted the surrender of Japan after World War II. Uh, but he was also, as part of his career, uh, removed from command uh, by Truman during the Korean War for being a little bit uh, maybe too aggressive, but also allegedly ignoring orders 
of Truman about what to do and kind of what uh, levels of uh, what, what he was allowed to do during during the Korean War and potentially almost provoking China into a war with nuclear weapons. It's a controversial decision by an unpopular president at the time. And it started, you know, in our real world, that sacking of MacArthur really started off a constitutional crisis and hearings were held about whether or not the president could even do that, uh, which is really fascinating when you think about today about some decisions that a uh, president makes about uh, military leadership, that that was not, really not even much of a question. And also when right. I had in, I guess the book authors were inspired by General Edwin Walker. And this is not something I know a lot about, but I do know that the story is, is that uh, he was a commander that was charged with violations of the Hatch Act, which you're not allowed to campaign and talk about policy when you're wearing the uniform. General Walker also is part of his efforts to promote his, his very right wing views. He campaigned in the uniform. He put out lots of flyers and propaganda until he was pushed out in 1961. So all that together produces a really fascinating villain that I think stands in strong contrast to people like General Jack D. Ripper from Dr. Strangelove, who is, uh, you know, a bit of a, a crazy person. But the book, Red Alert, the character from there, is more close, I would say, to General Scott, because mm. he believes that the Russians are about to get ballistic missiles, when once they get ballistic missiles, then they're going to attack the United States. So his idea of, well, I need to start to do my mission of uh, sending out the bombers to start a small-scale attack so that political leaders will be forced into doing a full-scale first strike. Because he feels that eventually, at some point, it's going to happen either way. We might as well get ahead of it. That's a little bit more... It's crazy. You know, it's as as crazy as General Jack T. Ripper's plan, but the reasoning is a little bit different. A, a preventive war is the best option for safeguarding the future of the United States. So, yeah. I guess my question of long rambling is, is like, what do you think of that villain? Uh, you know, I'm calling him a villain, but maybe some people from different perspectives would say he's not a villain. Uh, General Scott, he's just doing what he believes is right. Although I guess the best villains also believe they're doing things that are right. They're not just evil for the sake of being evil. You know, what do you think of this particular character in in the in this movie, given all the other new movies I'm sure you've watched uh, over the years? <laughs> he's compelling, you know, and he's he's also reasonably nuanced more so in the in the book than in the in the film because the book you can go into much more interior stuff than they can show right. um you know on screen you know and i to go back to something that i said you know at the top of the podcast you know for people i guess for the fbi and others who were saying you know this is you know anti-american again it's not it's about defending the constitution it's about defending the rule of law and mm -hmm. president lyman and jiggs and other characters at various points bring this up, and it's more explicit in the book that it's perfectly fine for military officers to disagree with the president, you know, whether it's a matter of war, or in this case, a matter of a treaty, and to lay out those concerns. But once the treaty has been ratified by the Senate, and once it becomes law, that's it. You know, they, they need to stop. Mm -hmm. And if they really still fundamentally disagree with it, they should resign. Maybe they should run for office, whatever it is. But if, if they're going to remain within the military system and the chain of command, they need to follow orders. And if the president says, this is what we're going to do, they have to agree to do it. They may not like it. They may privately disagree with it, but they cannot actively subvert it. And that's the point that I think is so powerful and resonates so much today is that, you know, you have a system here set up where you've got checks and balances and where you have full opportunities within the system for people to have their say. But at the end of the day, it's the president's call. And, and that's the law. And it's not, you cannot take 
the law into your own hands and go above the law just because you happen to believe that you are right and the elected leader of the country is wrong. I mean, there's other, there's other I think, parallels and, and resonances in this too. I mentioned, you know, the character of McPherson, who's dealt with very little in the, in the film, but, you know, this right-wing character is kind of like, you know, Rush Limbaugh and Sean Hannity and Alex Jones rolled into one. He's got his own network. He can say whatever he wants. Everybody agrees he's a nut job. Even Scott in the movie says, look, I don't have yeah, to agree with them, but he gives me a platform. Yeah. You know, you've got Iran figuring very prominently in the book, not really at all in the movie, but here we are dealing with, with Iran again. You've got constitutional questions. Obviously, we're dealing with that now. Coup, witch hunt, conspiracy, you know, ring a bell. Mm-hmm. Uh, you've got nuclear threats and treaties unraveling. You know, hello, here's where we are. It's a cerebral film. But I think it does a great job in in really defending, you know, how things should be done versus, you know, obviously what, you know, how things might be done in the Soviet Union. So, yeah, in terms of Scott, I, you know, he's you understand his point of view. Yeah. And in the book, you know, he's just he's misguided. He's sort of lost his way. He loves his country so much that he kind of goes off the deep end and wants to get rid of the president. But as the president made clear to him in the book you really wouldn't be doing anything differently than me. And, and, and as he says in the book and in the movie, how do you, what do you think would happen right. if you took over the country? You think the Soviet Union is going to sit there? No. Could be hours, could be days, yeah. but they're going to do something because they're going to see that the military is taking over. And to them, that means something very different than what you're talking about, General. Uh, and absolutely. He, just, he, doesn't, he doesn't get that. I think you're talking about processes and and what people, how the military may want to inject itself into, uh, say, nuclear uh, command and control decisions. When the president makes an order to use nuclear weapons to deploy them, you you know, breaks open the nuclear football, whether it's a tiny little case or if it's the larger (laughs) kind of 40 pound uh, leather clad uh, box. We hear there are are some interesting rumors and stories of people who have said that General uh, Mattis, former... uh, you know, Secretary of Defense had made claims to said, I will inject myself into that particular process. If the president were to place an order for uh, the use of nuclear weapons, he's like, give me a call first. He's talking to the people who are involved at, in this process, who like who are supposed to go through the order. He's like, no, let me get involved. I will I will stop this from happening. I'm going to be the grown up in the room if President Trump decide, wakes up one day and decides to you know launch a weapon. The evidence for that is not incredibly clear. People have made claims uh, in writing and on Twitter about this, and people have also pushed back against that. So it is a, a debate that I don't know if you're if you have any sort of thoughts on kind of where that what that is and what the reality of that is. But you know, if that is true, it's incredibly meaningful because it is saying that the process is not going to be followed. And right. yeah, right now we may feel yes, it'd be great if someone were to stop the president from doing what he's wanting to do if he wants to decide to, to launch a weapon. But it is. It is dangerous if you just take and you flip things around a little bit more where the president actually needs to do something or it's another type of decision. And, and a military says, no, I, I have a policy difference than you and I'm going to remove your authority mm-hmm. in this particular case. Uh, it's right. a it's a fascinating little discussion and it, it does kind of draw a little bit on the tops of things that the movie covers. Right. No, it's it's well, I mean, and I do remember when Mattis or was reported to have said that. Uh, General Keeler, who's the former head of Stratcom, said something a little bit similar in uh, in Senate testimony before the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last year, 
where he said if you know he were there and the president you know wanted to give an order and he thought that it was either unwise or unlawful he would say well sir you know what that's really not how we should do it and the senator said it was questioning him said well how what would you do then? He said, well, I, I don't know. We've never really faced that yeah. circumstance, but I would I would talk to him and find a way to make it legal. And, and the thing to keep in mind is that these, these war plans aren't, you know, sort of put together willy-nilly. They exist right now. I mean, they're in, they, they reside within the football and in a safe in uh, headquarters of U.S. Strategic Command. So it's not like they need yeah. to figure this out. It's all ready to go. Because they have to figure it out in four minutes. <laughs> right. So if the president, they have very little time. So if the president decides it's what he wants to do, he says, I want, you know, plan Y or whatever, they execute that. It's important to note that whatever Mattis said or thought, whatever Keeler said he would do, there is, and the way the system has been set up, and it's been set up because we've always been afraid because people are soft targets and communications are mm-hmm. soft targets, and they would not survive a, a first strike, that... The system has always been set up since day one that the president has the ultimate authority and nobody can legally stop him or challenge him. Now, people could certainly refuse to carry out an order. And so, you know, you could have a mutiny. You could have people that are, you know, otherwise refusing to carry what they consider to be an unlawful order, which kind of jives with some of the themes in, the, in Seven Days in May. Right. You know, to count on the safety of the country and the world that people would countermand an order and refuse to follow the president is a pretty thin reed to hang the security of the fate of the world on. <laughs> but that's what it would really take. Now, the president cannot execute a nuclear strike physically on his own. All he can do is say, I am authorizing this, verify his identity, and then it's up to people down the chain to carry it out. Obviously, he's not pushing buttons, turning keys, all of that. And once you get down really low to the chain of command to where the quote unquote operators are, they're not going to know what the reality of the situation is. They're not going to know the president's state of mind, why he gave the order. They may not even understand what the particular state of the world is right now that would have caused him to do that. All they know is that they have trained constantly, constantly to do this so that it's basically by rote, so that they don't question it at all. They do it and do their job, and then they can think about where the missiles might be going. Somebody could intervene, but it's that that A is not legal, and B, who knows whether that would actually work. And if there's enough people inside the military that support the president, it will happen. Yeah, this movie, even from 1964, it still continues to uh, to, to play out um, in very very different and interesting ways, uh, which I think is why the the movie is you know why we're covering it, it here right now. But so we still have to we have to get ourselves on record here about what we thought about the film overall. So we do our rating system uh, every time we do uh, one of these podcast episodes. It's usually a consistent one to five rating, uh, so we can compare the content across all the different things we talk about. But because I get super critical about the content, I want to also get super critical about the rating. So I've I've run the numbers here. I've uh, I've talked to my my, my joint chiefs, and uh, <laughs> and then what I'm going to do here is uh, one out of five bets on a horse race. Uh, because if you have just one bet coming your way, you don't have much support for your plans. But if you have five bets coming into your Preakness pool, you can pretty much write your own ticket. So it's nice to have that kind of support. So what would you give this out of uh, one out of five bets on a horse race? I think I'd probably give it about a 4.5. I, having now read the book, it's coloring my observations. I might downgrade it to a four just a little bit because there's some things I think they could have done differently. But I don't, you know, 
I saw the movie before I ever read the book. So I'll, I'll stick with a four and a half for now. Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, I would do four and a half as well. I, to me, the reason why it keeps it from being a perfect movie is because it's really dated in terms of its uh, uh, gender equality. There's only one female character that largely has a speaking role, and that person is, is not in necessarily the best place. Uh, so that and, and it's hard to judge movies by that, but I to me, it's it's about my, not necessarily the quality of the movie, but it's what it means to me in terms of my enjoyment of it. That one thing it kind of takes away from it, but the rest of it, it's a slow burn. The political thriller is really good. The twists are fun, uh, and the new and there's some great scenes uh, between some really amazing actors. And the nuclear component seems to be a lot stronger in the book, at least in terms of the how they get into the weeds. But it's still there, and it's always in, in the forefront of the movie. So I recommend people check that out. And think, speaking of things to recommend, you know, there's three things that I want to recommend to people who and may have enjoyed this uh, content. They want some more things related to it so they can check this out. You know, three things for me is one, the Manchurian Candidate, uh, both the uh, original one with uh, Frank Sinatra, uh, directed by John Frankenheimer, but also uh, the one with Denzel Washington is actually not too bad either. So I would recommend people check those out. Those are fun uh, political thrillers as well about people who are a, a brain, a potentially brainwashed uh, former soldier who is now being used to for nefarious purposes. Um, secondly, I would recommend people check out what I mentioned earlier, the international campaign to abolish nuclear weapons, uh, which you can go to their website at www.icanw.org. And you can check out uh, some of their statements that they're making on why a treaty to ban nuclear weapons which has now been open for signature and people are signing it you can go and see what their arguments are and then you can watch this movie to hope that if the u.s president were to sign this agreement that it wouldn't be played out the same way that it does in, in the movie that, that we don't have this kind of consequences and then finally a plug for your book atomic audit they mentioned earlier from this book from 1998 really has a really great attempt to calculate the full cost of the U.S. nuclear arsenal. And it was a resource that I used in high school when I first got into this and continues to be uh, very important in this field. So I reckon people check that out as well. Stephen, do you happen to have anything you want to alert people towards? Uh, sure. I mentioned it before, but there's a uh, if, if people are kind of interested in the uh, ins and outs of uh, how we prepared to uh, survive a, a nuclear war, uh, how the government, rather, prepared to do that. David Krugler, K-R-U-G-L-E-R, has a good book called This Is Only a Test mm -hmm. uh, that goes into some good detail. Uh, there's a more recent book by Garrett Graff, G-R-A-F-F, -F, called uh, Raven Rock, uh, which has the wonderful subtitle of uh, <laughs> the story of the U.S. government's secret plan to save itself while the rest of us die, <laughs> which does a phenomenal job of excavating uh, plans, both past and present, for everything the government is prepared to do to, to survive. Yeah, so I definitely recommend that. If you want to know more about these issues in general, a little bit about the history and so forth, you've already recommended my book, so I can't recommend that myself. <laughs> but the organization I work with, the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, has been around since 1945 covering these issues. So um, definitely uh, take a look at that. It's online at thebulletin.org. Very informative. I'm sure there's another book, but I can't, I can't think of it at the moment. So uh, <laughs> we'll just leave it there. Terrific. Well, thank you very much again. I appreciate it. Also, make sure people follow you on Twitter at Atomic Analyst. That would, another good way they can see what you're thinking about every day. Great. Well, thank you for the opportunity. I appreciate it. 
Thanks for listening to another episode of the Supercritical Podcast. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or future guests or want to tell us what we got wrong, uh, let us know. Uh, a couple ways you can do that. You can go on Twitter at Nuclear Podcast. We're on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Supercritical Podcast. I also check email at SupercriticalPodcast at gmail.com. And if you enjoyed the program, please go on iTunes or wherever you listen and leave a good review or tell one of your friends. So until next time, this has been Tim Westmeyer And Stephen Schwartz. And remember, if it's pop culture and radioactive, we are bound to get super critical about it. Have a good one.